Hey everyone, Kyle here. Welcome back to the Climbing Majority Podcast, where Max and I sit down with living legends, professional athletes, certified guides, and recreational climbers alike to discuss the topics, lessons, stories, and experiences found in the life of a climber. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, and welcome back to our conversation with Alan Burgess. Our previous episode, we talked about super high alpine objectives. And in this conversation, we're going to be talking about his most notable high altitude objectives. This is a three and a half hour conversation, so I'm going to keep this introduction very brief. In our conversation today, we talk about high altitude climbing, climbing above 8,000 meters. We talk about its effect on the body, and we talk about the logistics of large-scale expeditions. Most notably in this conversation, we will talk about his attempt on the west ridge of Everest in winter, a route that still to this day has yet to be climbed. His successful winter ascent of Dalagiri, the north face of Annapurna 4 in winter, and finally, we talk about his attempt on K2 in the spring, during a season where a massive storm killed five of seven climbers still left on the mountain. All right, we are back. Welcome back to the show, Al Burgess, for part two. How you doing today? Good. Yeah. Just opened a blue can. Yeah, there we, we go. Can of Foster's. <laughs> Can't do a show without Foster's. <laughs> You know, I haven't actually tried this beer until I met Al. Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. This I is have your, a, I have your a hard choice, choice, right? I have a hard time holding smaller cans. <laughs> 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 it's an Australian beer, is it not? <laughs> yeah? It's made in the U.S. Oh, okay. Or Canada. I, I've never tried a Foster's in my uh, my own mission here, but oh, yeah. I do, yeah, do, do Coors Original, which is uh, probably my favorite beer, so... The banquets. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Is there a lot of craft beers up in Canada? Man, there's so yeah. many craft beers. You know, funny enough, my yeah. my stomach used to be able to tolerate almost anything, but there's something about the microbrewery craft process that actually gives me some type of an allergic reaction. Like my, my throat gets really Whoa. tight and I produce a whole bunch of mucus. Oh. So just the classic simple beers, you know, they work great for me. I don't, I'm not that adventurous with trying craft beers anymore because it doesn't yield a very fun res- response from my no, body. It must be the, it's the hops. Probably the maybe hops, all the yeah. yeast. Possibly yeah. hops and yeast yeah. quantities or something they're doing in the brewing process. I don't know, but you know, I know that I really like Coors and it's not worth being upset for an entire evening to just try something else. I'm like, it works. <laughs> Yeah, I drive Foster's. Yeah, that seems pretty safe. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's good. It's good, and you know it's better than Adolf Coors beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is that that's his name? Name who understands Adolf, Adolf Coors. Yeah, <laughs> not a very popular name nowadays. <laughs> no, we go into some history lessons for Adolf. sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I do resonate with the larger cans, uh, Al. You know. Um, <laughs> Uh, a friend of mine, Nathan. It's good occupying it because, you know, it kind of keeps those tendons. Going. Yeah, it's a morale <laughs> booster. I When I climb with my friend Nathan, anytime we go to the States, they sell really large king cans of the Coors beer. They don't, they pretty much don't sell them here in Canada. And so we always, you know, load up the bag with some, some king cans for base camp. And uh, 
the more <laughs> off boosters needed. So it was good. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So today's discussion. Altitude. Yeah. Altitude. Altitude. So before our last episode, we talked about he's called it super alpine. Yes. And and the objectives that we you know we covered back then. If you missed the episode, um, check it out. Um, but today we're talking about high altitude objectives. Yeah, I guess I'll just kind of start off by, um, you know, just in case someone didn't listen to our previous episode, right. just give us a quick difference between super alpine uh, slash alpine versus right. a high altitude objective. Like well, what are the differences? Yes. Well, so let's start off alpine. So when you're thinking alpine, generally, let's take Chamonix. In France and Italy, as well, France, as a, an idea. So the highest mountain around Chamonix is Mont Blanc. It's the highest in Europe at fifteen thousand feet, right? So you can you can feel fifteen thousand feet. So if you were to start on a four thousand foot mixed ice face, which finishes on Mont Blanc, like the Brenva face, or even harder, you're going to feel altitude. Unless you're, unless you're acclimatized already. Mm-hmm. And that would be a challenging route to start out with, going straight over the top of Mont Blanc. There's one of the most famous cable cars goes to the top of the Aiguille de Midi, mm-hmm. and that's 13,000 feet. Mm-hmm. I have guiding, guide friends who will go up to the Aiguille de Midi on their free passes for a few days running and spend all day up there to acclimatize, just sat around in the bar or whatever, <laughs> acclimatizing um, just at 13,000 feet. Even might spend the night there because yeah. that really helps you to acclimatize. So alpine altitudes are generally between 11 and 15,000 feet. Okay. That's alpine. Now, once you get to super alpine, There's two things. One is the scale of the peak. So although Fitzroy is only, I don't know, just under 12,000 feet in South America, because of the length of the routes and you're starting very low down, maybe, I don't know, two, 3,000 feet, that would be considered super alpine. Now, as soon as you get up, or Denali, Mm -hmm. which, you know, we did that route on the... the, um, the southern face, south face, which is 9,000 feet, you know, the Cassine Spur, mm-hmm. that's up to 20,000 feet. But it's 20,000 feet at a latitude, which is Arctic, which makes it more difficult and higher. When, when Dougal Haston and uh, Doug Scott did it, Haston had just come off of Everest, he said it felt like 23,000. Wow. So... I would consider, and and then you go the route we did, like um, South Face of Logan. That's nineteen thousand something. Mm-hmm. That's it's it's built. It's twenty thousand feet and under. Mm-hmm. Let's call it tw- if effective latitude. Let's say twenty one thousand feet and under. So that would be super alpine, which has a quality of a big face, big remote face, up to. It includes elevation as well, often. You know, in um, Huascarannote, that, that peak was 21,000 feet. But it was a 6,000-foot face and technical, big face. 
So that was considered super alpine. And so most of the things done, say, in South America that are, you know, up at 20,000 feet could be kind of considered super alpine mm -hmm. if they're going up that. It's above 15, which is Mont Blanc. So once you get above 15, you can think of it, if it's long and, and big, you could think of it as super alpine. Now, let's get to the Himalaya. What is, there's some, some climbs there that are highly technical, that aren't, that are super alpine, not high altitude. Would the Trango Tower be one of those? The Trango Tower would be one, mm -hmm. yeah. Highly technical, but I can't even remember how high that is. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, like I can't have forgotten, or... 18, 20, something like that. There's not a huge difference between 17 and 20. There's a difference. There's a difference if you're moving fast and light, but there's not a big difference if you're doing technical climbing. Because you're going to be acclimatizing on the face. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to be sleeping on the face, you know, a couple of nights sleeping at 17,000. You're going to acclimatize to 20, basically. But so let's start now Himalayan high altitude. Um, most of the base camps on big Nepal or Tibetan mountains are around 17,000 feet. It can vary 16 and a half, 17 and a half, right? Mm -hmm. Most of those base camps are there for a good reason. Because, you know, first of all, you can get lowland porters and yaks and so on to go to those elevations easily and that's why you have things called advanced base camps you have a base camp and then an advanced base camp so in the old school of um, high altitude climbing you worked on a pyramid and that pyramid meant you took the bottom of pyramid required a lot of equipment to to keep there that would be at base camp, 16 and a half, 17,000 feet. As you got higher up the pyramid, less equipment in this kind of large military style expedition, which many of them are and still are. So as you got towards the top of the pyramid, that's where least number of people went on, on carrying and ferrying loads. So, for example, if you're on a guided Everest expedition right now, the Sherpa's going to carry probably oxygen bottles up to 26,000 feet, possibly above. Mm -hmm. So that would be almost the top of the pyramid for a logistical scale. Mm -hmm. But all the way up there, there are altitude levels that you're feeling. And I would say, well, the Sherpa, the Sherpas, villagers, for example, are normally, and Tibetan, are usually at about 12,500 feet. That's comfortable for living permanently. Once you start to move above that, I think 16,500 is some of the highest settlements now. You know, there used to be seasonal yak pastures, but now with, you know, trekking industries and expedition industry, 16,500, I think that is where you don't deteriorate and I think you can actually reproduce at 
above sixteen and uh, built. Sorry, at sixteen and a half thousand feet. Are you are you saying reproduce like you can, you can rebuild cells, or you can actually like have a kid? You could probably have a kid there. I should ask my brother. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying that you could not procreate above, above a certain see, yes above a certain the uh, chances altitude? are you probably can procreate above. Sixteen and a half thousand. I think you're talking about a, you're talking a, about like a permanent settlement, though. It's you could physically have yeah. the task of, of we could call it making oh, love you or could whatever. Probably you want you could do times, that, but I but to actually stay there at me. a sustained period of time where your body's yes. not deteriorating, you're not going to feel sick and miserable. Right. So if you you know so if you yeah. if you're having say and and quite often there'll be there are Chopani women uh, who are taking care of the yaks high up for many months of the year, they probably wouldn't be reproducing. Wow. Couldn't reproduce it at 16, above 16 and a half, 17,000. Too know, much stress on the body. They'd probably become infertile for that period of time. That would be an interesting study. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that... effects of altitude on the menstrual cycle. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that is, um, you know, where things become comfortable. And also, 16 and a half thousand feet is where... The glaciers start, right? You know, some start lower on different peaks, but like Everest Base Camp, just as an example, you know, starts at about, well, now it's probably 17,500 feet glacial ice. It comes a little lower. I don't, I haven't been there recently, so I don't know how much it's melted back. But you used to, the last day um, going up to Everest Base Camp, you were walking with dry glacier to one side of it for most of the day. Right, so and so that's another reason to have a camp at sixteen and a half thousand, because you can you can have yaks go all the way up there to to the base camp. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense for that. Now, how does it feel the climbing? Well, let let's take a peak like K two and Everest because these Everest is the easiest to describe from. 17,500 up to 19 is camp one. Going up to 21,500 to 22-ish is camp two, advanced base camp. This, there isn't a great deal of difference once you're acclimatized between those elevations. You don't really feel a lot once you're acclimatized. Now, if you're not acclimatized on a lower, like um, a 23,000-foot peak in India, and you're going up from 17 and a half up to 21 and a half. Yeah, you're going to feel it, especially on technical climbing. But if the top of the peak is at 23, that's only 1,500 foot higher than 21 and a half. So real quick, I, I, on this topic of acclimatization, yeah. what is acclimatization? What is happening inside the body? Is it the lack of oxygen? Are there other factors at play? And why does it take so much time for our bodies to adjust to the higher altitude. Okay, so it's the change in pressure. There's still lots of oxygen, we just can't get at it. Okay. So it's the change in pressure. And so, yeah, I don't know how much, I don't know the math of it, of how much oxygen can absorb. Well, it depends on your acclimatization and sometimes individually. So the first thing you're going to start doing when you get to high altitude, you're going to start breathing deeper and slower because you're going to be moving a little slower on regulating the breath. If you're 
rushing and stopping, you're going to be <sighs> shallow breath, gagging, right? Whereas if you just moderate your behavior, nice, slow, steady, walking up a glacier, <sighs> you're going to be able to probably keep going without stopping. Now, over a longer period of time, one of the first things that's going to happen, you're going to start producing more red cells because that's the transport system of oxygen through the body. And so there's a level, it's known as hematocrit. And, you know, and it varies, you know, we'll have a higher hematocrit in 4,000 foot in Reno, for example, than if you're at sea level in San Francisco. Your base level of hematocrit will be slightly higher. Let's, and, and it's also different between males and females. Males have a higher natural levels of hematocrit, of red cell counts. Does, does genetics play a factor on this hematocrit, it like will, from could. person to person? Yes, it will do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the hematocrit varies, right? So 30% of your blood is probably included, you know, on a fully hydrated person, I think red cell count is around 30%. Let's take 30 to 35% as a standard, as an average. You know, I mean, there will be different, there's mm-hmm. differences all around. You know, I mean, if you're living up a, a ski area at 9,000 feet, it will be higher. You know, but if normally they, mod, mod, they measure this at sea level, but, you know, in North America, a lot of mountains, people live in above sea level. So, you know, it will be slightly different. Okay. When you, when you start to acclimatize, your blood will thicken and you often are working with slightly dehydrated body. So your hematocrit will go up. Now, some people's hematocrit has been measured going up to 65%. Now you think, oh, wow. So my oxygen-carrying capacity at high altitude now with my increased red cell counts, wow, I'm going to be like a superhuman. Not true. Because what happens, you'll get, it's called sludging. You'll get all these hollow red cells backing up against one another in small capillaries, and you could end up having a stroke. Blood clots. Blood clots. Particularly if you're in a... Lying in a tent, mm-hmm. dehydrating with a 65% hematocrit, and you're getting dehydrated and not moving your legs around. High levels of blood clots, embolisms. An embolism at high altitude, super dangerous. You get an embolism in your leg because you're not moving it, and then you get up and go outside to take a pee off or start moving, and that embolism moves through your lungs and starts tearing up tissue. And could end up in your heart. You could have a heart attack. Even. So, so now I'll talk about Sherpas who are living. I was on an expedition uh, to Everest in '86, where I, before guiding was popular, I had one client, and it was the, probably one of the first commercial expeditions on Everest. It was run by a Swiss guy from Zurich, and he was, you know, selling places off. And I had this one client who was actually not much of a climber, just a wealthy guy, but he was he was an athlete, you know. But 
So when we got, we arrived kind of late because I'd just come off of, it was in 86. So I'd just come off of K2, British K2 expedition. And I'd spent two months uh, trekking in Ladakh with a German girlfriend. And then I'd, we'd hiked all the way into Everest Base Camp. So now this is probably sometime towards the mid end of September when we arrived. I think that was, might have been early September, but I'd been at altitude for a long time. I'd been up high, I'd come down low, but I hadn't gone below 12,500 feet much for a long period, and then I hiked in. So they, the Swiss doctors were testing our hematocrits. And so we got there, you know, they took blood tests there and then spun it and tested. And Sherpas were testing at 50% hematocrit. So they're already acclimatized. Climbers coming in, you know, just coming from Switzerland, were testing at like 40 but I'd been up high for ages, you know. I came in and I tested at 50. Mm. Now, that's normal because I was already pre-acclimatized almost. You know, I had enzymes. I could adapt quickly. So I already had sharp acclimatization of 50%. What the big difference was, they tested us a month later some of the Swiss climbers were up at 58, 60%. Mine was still at 50. So were all the Sherpas. Mm. That was Sherpa acclimatization because increased hematocrit is only a temporary acclimatization strategy for the body. If it keeps on getting thicker and thicker blood, it's going to kill you. So there seems to be a sweet spot, essentially, of efficiency. There's a sweet spot at 50%, yes. And Sherpas have it. Now, I think if you spend so much time at altitude, um, I think Westerners can get that. Yes. Yeah, so, I, obviously, I had it. Yeah, right? what, what do you think the time frame is? Like, I don't know. You don't know? Okay. I don't know. But my guess is all those guides on Everest, if they guide in Everest, in the springtime, and then the guiding at altitude somewhere else, going to K2 or whatever, they must be getting sharp acclimatization. But you're, so it sounds like no matter what happens, if you're not acclimatized and you don't have the proper hematocrit, you're going to get into this, this environment and your hematocrit levels are going to spike past 50 regardless. Probably. But it's the fact that you're able to stay in that environment for a longer amount of time where your body reaches some sort of equilibrium. That, where that's what I call Sherpa acclimatization. So it's just the sheer amount of time you're spending in this I environment. Think, I, I think so, yeah. Okay. Without yeah. trying too hard and going up too fast, spiking that hematocrit too high. Well, I think problems. even if I went up too fast, it wouldn't go any higher. Well, because I'm just saying in the beginning, in the beginning stages, though, in the beginning it's super stages, important yes. not to stress your body too fast. Yes. Yeah. And just otherwise, there's things like edema, mm -hmm. which is a whole different ball game of high altitude. What happens? So generally speaking, on a big Himalayan expedition, you need to acclimatize, even if you're going to go alpine style at the end of it. The Russians reckoned they wouldn't um, go much above 21,000 feet for ages. 
you know, they probably had Sherpas putting camps up. I remember there was a Russian expedition on Everest in the spring of 82 before the Canadian expedition. And I was going in there, walking in the Canadian oxygen bottles. And um, so I saw all these Russians coming in. You know, I mean, it was a communist expedition in 1982. I mean, there were guys in the airport with leather jackets down to their ankles and stuff, right? <laughs> Commissars and all the rest of it. But good athletes, good high-altitude athletes, they'd probably been training in the Pamirs and, you know, done all that stuff. Well, they, what they were doing, they were going up and spending a lot of time about at advanced base camp at 21,500 feet, say 6,500 meters. That's what they reckon. 6,500 meters, and they spend a long time. They wouldn't bother going higher. Mm. They really wouldn't. And they would come way down low to recover, down to 13,000 feet. Mm. Because what I reckon, once you start spending so much time at 17 and a half, I don't think you get in... Um, um, replacement of muscle tissue at the same level. Mm. You might be getting super acclimatized, but and you get super fit and strong initially. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that with myself, where I've climbed with super strong Sherpas, and I had stronger legs early on mm-hmm. and good acclimatization. But six weeks later, they were. You know, on the even with the protein and whatever food, we all had the choice of whatever food we wanted to eat. You know, on these big trips, you can fucking eat steaks, you know, in packages, or you can eat peanut butter, or you can live on rice and lentils, which I often did because I felt better on it. But um, there's a curve where my, after six weeks, my muscle tissue was not as strong as the beginning of the expedition. And the Sherpas seemed to be consistent with that. Immune to it. My, yeah, my legs were stronger than Sherpas at the beginning because I know I had to carry some loads for some Sherpas mm-hmm. who couldn't do it, right, you know. Um, but they seem to just keep this level of muscular development versus acclimatization. Mm-hmm. So for a Westerner, what you want to do is you want to acclimatize but not destroy your legs. Mm-hmm. So because there's a a point where there's two graphs coming from each side. This is the strength graph, and this is the acclimatization graph. You want them to peak where they cross. Right, when you're trying to ascend to the summit. That's when you go for the summit. Mm -hmm. That's where you want to be because you've got the maximum leg strength and the maximum acclimatization. Wow. So, Al, I'm familiar with two styles of acclimatization. One you've mentioned briefly here, which is the Russian style, which is uh, climb high, sleep low, essentially. And that's part of what you're talking well, about. Well, everybody does For that sure. But I think with. it originated with the Russians. I think they actually kind of started that. Um, I'm, Did they? Climb high, sleep low? I think so. That's, no. It was possibly. It was around. I think that's what I've heard from Peter was, Hackett in some of the books I've read. But I don't want to contradict. The, the other style I'm familiar with is to just consistently climb but not exceed an elevation uh, gain of a thousand feet a day, and so it's kind of this that works for trekking. For trekking, yeah, that works for, the, for or trekking, lower peaks, right up to about nineteen thousand, okay. right. But once you get above that, if you start going up a thousand foot a day, you know the curve, the dis, the feel um, to go from like twenty thousand to twenty three feels about the same 
is from 23 to 24 and a half. It's not a right? lot. It's not. And from 24 and a half to 26 feels like going from 20 to 24 and a half. Almost. Way bigger jumps. It gets exponential. Yeah. Exponential. Yeah. And, and with the acclimatization, it seems like it has everything to do with your oxygen absorption in the body. Yes. And so if someone had oxygen tanks for the entire trip, they were just breathing out of tanks, could they skip the acclimatization process altogether and just go straight for the summit? Um, or is there something else going on? Well, it probably... You would be at extreme risk. Because if, if an oxygen tank failed or anything happened you would and you weren't acclimated, you would pretty much just instantly get hape or haze. What they're doing on Everest expedition right now, the Kumbu Icefall hooked to camp, you know, between 17 and a half at base camp and 19 at camp one is super dangerous. You don't want punters basically taking, like with this one Dutch guy, when I was on this Swiss trip, took 14 hours to go through the Cumber Weissfall. Holy whatever. 14 hours. I was going through it in two and a half. Wow. Right? And all Sherpas, right? we were carrying a load. I don't think he was even carrying anything. I mean, four would be standard. Like, you know, four would be a normal time. Right? 14. That means everybody behind them is going at the same pace. Well, they're passing okay. around them and stuff like that. The stuff. issue is that the Kumbu is going. falling apart. So well, you're in a shooting well, well, gallery. Yeah, right? we'll, we'll talk about we'll yeah. talk about the Kumbu a little later. Right. I don't want to dive too deep into yeah. that. But so what they do but so what they're doing for acclimatization on these guided trips, they're taking up to 20,000 foot on a trekking peak, which is easy access, and only the last day on snow. And they have and they're having a camp up there for them. So they probably you know, have a camp at 19 and a camp at 20. And then they just like, you know, sleeping them at 17 and a half, hiking them in slow, go up to 19, come back to 17 and a half, go and sleep at 19, go from 19 to 20, come back down to 19, go back up to 20 and sleep. Now they're acclimatized. They can go all the way basically from base camp to camp two safely. And that's what they're doing. And then they're putting them on oxygen from there. And so, they, you know, if they were going all the way from base camp, rushing them, they'd have to have a lot of oxygen bottles, you know. Now, really, a, a person who's been guided on Everest should be able to get to 24 without. If he can't get to 24, she get to 24,000 without. If that oxygen runs out above 26, they shit out of luck. Mm-hmm. They, they may not even be able to come down without oxygen. They're going to need their hand-holding, sliding on their asses with, you know, semi-conscious, mm-hmm. getting the guides to get them down, right? Yeah, so this actually is a great caveat to talk about um, the death zone, basically over 8,000 meters. Yeah. yeah. So just quickly kind yeah. of talk about um, what that area and its effect on the body, like what do you start to feel well, you start like? To deteriorate, you're deteriorating faster. Your body's dying. Well, it's dying, but you deteriorate. You, I mean, your body, you know, your body. If you stayed, it's just a matter of time frame. If you stay above nineteen, twenty thousand, you're dying too. You're dying because they did these. They had these um, research camps, mm-hmm. you know, back in the late fifties and stuff that was measuring people's abilities. You know, they were keeping them at three months. 19,000 feet and doing tests on them. And they were starting to lose it, but they were losing it slowly, right? 
Now, you know, once you get to 26, you're going to start losing it quickly. You don't want to be spending nights up there so it becomes trying matter, to acclimatize. It becomes a matter of hours at that point. Hours. Yeah, uh, I would say, depends, if without oxygen, it's hours. It's hours, yeah. With oxygen, it's, it you can be could be a while because the oxygen can bring you back down to about 20,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a whole bunch of oxygen up there and you're just sucking, and it depends how many liters a minute you're sucking, mm-hmm. right? You know, most people operating, like, you know, somebody like myself, like 160 pound person could probably operate very nicely on four liters a minute. Now, you know, I probably wouldn't, I actually never managed to make it work. Yeah, it seems like it didn't work for you. <laughs> it didn't yeah. work for me very well. Um, I, when my brother climbed Everest, he climbed it probably on three liters a minute. He probably climbed it two liters a minute to start with, and then above twenty eight thousand. Sounds like probably a lot. turned it up to three liters a minute. Sherpas operate; they've got one hundred and forty pound body weight. They're running nicely at two liters a minute. How many liters can you carry at once at a two? Uh, oh, shit. Um, I think they last about if you were if you were using two liters a minute, I think you could probably get eight hours out of them. Oh, eight hours. Yeah, I mean okay. depends how okay. I think they're pressurized mm-hmm. to about four thousand pounds. Mm-hmm. Now the Russians on their expedition, they were the first to use titanium oxygen bottles and they were pressurizing them to six thousand pounds. Little bombs. Right? You're fucking right. You know, I mean I would say, you know. So they hit the thing sideways and watch the top go. You know. <laughs> but and and it depends because the original oxygen bottles were quite heavy, you know, aluminum fiberglass wrapped. Uh, American bottles, Japanese and French, were weighing in at about eighteen pounds a bottle, mm-hmm. full, and the, the liquid inside is not that heavy, right? So, you know, if you've got now with our titanium bottles, they're half that weight. Mm. So they're carrying two bottles. Well, the guided people are just carrying one, mm-hmm. you know, but it means that they can be ferried up the mountain at the top of the pyramid, mm-hmm. you know, a lot easier. Okay. But that's the acclimatization thing. Mm-hmm. Now, how do people, how do top level climbers? Well, I want to go down, you know, say to the Polish. Uh, Wojtek Kotika uh, climbing with Loreton, um, Jean Toyer, those guys, how did they do it? They were very similar to the Russians. They would spend a lot of time around 21,000. Sometimes they'd even go and climb other peaks, smaller peaks. That was Doug Scott's thing. He said, hey, why are we going to just plug up and down the same damn peak? We go and climb this peak first and have some fun. Climb this peak first and acclimatize. Spend quite a bit of time, like around 20 days, clocked in at 21,000 feet. Then go back down, eat a whole bunch of protein and get those legs all fired up again. Walk back up slowly, 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 not using any energy, back up to 21,000. And then... What they would do is climb continuously. This was uh, Wojtek and Erhard Loreton and guy, Jean Twyer. They would go really slowly above 21,000. And they would aim the climb throughout the night, carrying very little, just enough to make a brew with, 
and can't start off with water tucked in their water jackets and food and stuff, you know. Well hydrated because you don't want to get dehydrated, right? And you are panting, you're not using oxygen. So you're blowing out moisture all the time. So they would then time it to get to 8,000 meters, 26,000 feet, just as it was starting to get daylight and warm because that was when they were going to get colder. And then they would just keep going at the same speed all the way to 26,000. Sorry to, well, to do, it's a little bit, the top five peaks are are higher. But just to get to, say, 26 and a half, they would, they would say on Dalagiri or Annapurna or some of those type of peaks, you know, where it's just under 27,000, they would aim to come out at 25 and a half, 26, just as it was starting to get really warm. It was nice and warm. And they'd have a brew there and a rest and then just plod onto the summit and then fucking coming down, man. Coming down when you're not carrying anything without oxygen, you're just, it's like you're running into this thick atmosphere of oxygen, Mm. getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And you're coming downhill. It's just incredible, actually, as you come down at from altitude. Oh, much better you how much better you do, yeah. I mean, just fast. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. That, but this, that, these are the top guys, remember, doing and this the, kind of style. And this is like the new, newest version of what you've been doing? Kind of. We, well, we would, we would go, what we were doing, we were tending to put our high camps lower than most people and then doing a really long day to the summit and back. Yeah, so, you were like covering 7,000 feet in a day at some point. Six, sometimes six. And like Annapurna Fall in winter, I mean, we'd only been, we could talk about that later, but, you know, acclimatization wise, we'd been to 21,000 foot once before, digging an ice cave, came back all the way to base camp at 16 and a half, went back up, all not in a couple of days, to 21 and a half, and then went to 25, seven. Or whatever in a day and back in winter. And winter's different. (laughs) It's a bit slower because of the winds and cold and stuff. So the So that's kind of a rundown of that stuff, right? Absolutely. You know, so so for example, the um, Russians, Poles, Czechs have been doing really hard technical climbs up to twenty three thousand feet. Once you get above that. It's hard to do technical climbing, not because of the fitness level, but because the snow never thaws. So you never get never. It's always powder, mm. a lot of it. You could get windpack powder, but you're not getting super great ice climbing conditions. Aren't there like rock faces up that high, though? They're, they're mixed. I mean, normally there's ice around. Okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, you could say when, when winter above 24,000 feet, yeah, because the, the jet stream just cleans every shred of anything above the upper mountain, wow. right? But you're not, there's not a lot. There's, there's probably some stuff where rock, but you're not getting really rock climbing, it, technical rock climbing. Okay. I mean, I'm just thinking of Makalu and the West Butchers of Makalu. And Makalu is in the top five. I think it's the fifth highest. So you still need to, so you probably need a high camp there to get to twenty-seven and a half thousand, 
you might have to have a high camp at 26. You're not going to go from 24, probably, to 27 and a half. Well, you could if it wasn't technical. But if it started to be technical, but you see, you might have fixed ropes on, say, the first 2,000 feet uh-huh. of technical, and then you may have a ridge and a face and snow that you could do. I could see you doing that. You know, it varies from peak to peak, the strategy. But our strategy was basically to, you know, get pretty acclimatized because we always had small groups normally, not always on the big trips. But, and so you, you were going with soup. You couldn't carry a lot of food and gear. Yeah. So you, you, were, you were going or you were going up or you were coming down. You were not going to camp out at 26,000 and wait for the weather to get good mm-hmm. a week later. I don't think that's a good strategy, even if you've got supplies. Mm-hmm. You're just getting weaker. And, you, and people who do that, and I've had people argue that, the real reason that they want to not go down anything is they're not strong enough to get back up fast. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to give up one foot or 10 feet of territory. Mm-hmm. They want to slog it to the top. That's actually less effective. That's less effective. Actually, you're going to die if you go and do it, keep doing it that way. You know, you won't. You need to be up and off. Yeah. Because edema, three kinds. Peripheral comes up in your fingers and your cheeks. You look after Dalagiri, I looked, I think maybe even after the Canadian Everest thing, I looked, my cheeks were all puffed up. I looked like a chipmunk. You know, that's, but that's good because that's where the water went. If it went to the lungs or between the brain cavity, dangerous, super dangerous. So what's exactly ha- what's happening during edema? Edema is that um, water is building up. You're not you're not excre- excreting it sufficiently. Mm-hmm. So pulmonary edema is when you're working probably too hard. So your your body's feeling it's not handling your oxygen debt very well. And so you build up water in the lungs, you know, so you're basically drowning in your own lung. But if you come down quickly, that will change and, and go back. It will, you know, it'll heal itself. Reabsorb, yeah. Yeah. But if you get cerebral edema, when it gets between the skull and the brain cavity in that empty space there, that doesn't go away as fast. Mm-hmm. That's super dangerous. There were, I remember you in the book, you said one of your friends started going blind. Which, yeah, which yeah. edema is that? A sign that's, of? that's when you've got that's, um, cerebral edema okay. because it's, it's pressure on the optic nerve, mm-hmm. which is screwing with your eyes. Mm-hmm. Crazy. So you start that, you, at that stage, even going Go down, is dangerous. it may not help. I mean, oh. you may need to get down way more low and be put in a, like a Gamoff bag, which brings your pressure way I was going to say, have you ever been in a Gamoff bag or had anyone you've, no, have you ever had anyone on an expedition I, you've I, seen use one? I've seen them on expeditions use them. I never carried them even when I was guiding on treks because the thing is, you can only put one person in at a time. And if this person's starting to get edema, pulmonary edema, everyone else is like a few hours behind, probably. You can't put them all in at once. And you, what you're going to do, start shoving them in an hour at a time? Yeah. Right, you know, it's just, and people will lie to you how they're feeling if they think they've got an out. 
you don't want an out. You you want a medical out maybe on a really high altitude trip because maybe the weather says conditions says they can't get down off the mountain because it's avalanche or you know, it's a blizzard. And then they manage to get down and they suffer and they're being dragged down. They've got pulmonary edema. You throw them in the galloth bag and you can save their life. That would be that would be me saying that's a, a good use of it. Did you ever carry not the, just um, on dexamethasone or Dimox with yourself? We, we carried it. I've never taken it. Um, never had to give it Dex. That was the whole thing on that K2, what was it called? That, the movie. Yeah, the, um, <laughs> I watched that recently, uh, actually. I watched it as a kid. It's a, what's, it called? what's it called? Oh, man. Again? Vertical Limit. K2 Vertical Limit. Vertical it's limit. A, well, so you it's know, a hilarious movie. So you know, the, the two Australian brothers on vertical limits were actually originally supposed to be British and they were basically built around Adrian and myself. What? Really? Yeah. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And the lawyers told them it's a bit too close because they couldn't have twins because they couldn't find actors that were twins, yeah. right? Uh, so they tried to get brothers that looked kind of pretty similar and then they made them Australian to kind of shift it one step away. But that's what I've been told by people who worked on the film. Wow. You didn't get any credit for it. No. <laughs> no, no, no. That might be a good <laughs> thing. That movie um, is very, very inaccurate. <laughs> no, I think you, I think, Al, you should definitely rewatch Vertical Limit as it's, uh, it's quite an entertaining movie to go through. All I remember, I'm saying, give him the decks. Give him the, de- the decks. Get some methods on, you know. Yeah. Keep going up, but give him the debt. Yeah, they <laughs> act like it's a get out of jail free card. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Which no. it isn't. Yeah. It's a good one to take if yeah. you're caught in a tent where you can't get down the same night or the next day. But you should be down, coming down, not going up. Yeah, you know, yeah. keep you alive for a little bit longer. Yeah. So do you want to do real? So real quick, we yeah. we're, we're we're getting really close here. I want to talk um, just briefly about. Just because the the thing we talk about and we hear about a lot in media these days is light and fast, light and fast. And and it seems like because of this acclimatization period you have to go through for high altitude. Yeah. Light and fast is just not an option. Um, is that is that true? And and like the expedition style that we've talked about, about going up and down, up, up, down, sleeping, like this process has been developed to solve the problem of high altitude. Is that like, that's correct, right? We're, yeah. Okay. We can't do light and fast because of. Okay. So the light issue. and fast means on the final objective. Ah. So for example, and again, I'm going to help Lauderton and Jean Troyer. They did the North Couloir of Everest without oxygen. One of the best ascents, high altitude ascents pulled off ever. They did it something like, I don't even think they bivied. They did it from the bottom of the couloir to the top and then three hours slid back down the couloir, basically bump sliding on deep snow. <laughs> I don't think that they bivied anywhere on it. I think they went continuously. Wow. But that was light and fast. Mm-hmm. But they'd spent probably a month prior to that acclimatizing on other stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the light and fast means go fast and technically and climb up, climb down, don't use fixed ropes, or use a little bit of fixed ropes and technical ground. 
Um, but on the final attempt, try to do it as light. Of, well, you have to do it. If you're going to do it fast, you have to do it light, mm -hmm. right? So basically, it's about doing it fast as a sign of fitness and competence. But prior month was training and acclimatizing to come into this final project. For 30 days. So, so you know, so it still says there's some things that, you know, the big old expedition model, but right now with super lightweight equipment and training, light and fast should be where we're going. But I, I, I see, I guess, going into a little bit of pros and cons versus both methods. It seems like the cons to a light and fast um, method is that if something goes wrong, you are so far away from your camp or your established point of starting that you can get pretty screwed pretty quick because you don't have any room for error. Well, it's high risk. It's yeah. like Alpine style. Mm -hmm. Commitment. You can't come back down the fence. I think the big points to it are, A, you can't cheat acclimation. You have to acclimatize to a certain point once the oh, yes. altitude is enough. And then the yes. secondary thing with this light and fast style at higher altitudes, that's pretty much the biggest playing field, the, the largest stage you can play. And it's it's like Kyle's saying here, there's it's a much more committing and severe uh, consequence, right? You're much faster, speed is yeah. your friend. Yeah. Once you've acclimated, you can go light and fast and do that. But in the event that something happens, you're very much at the mercy of the mountain. You don't have a team of shorts oh, yeah. around you. You don't have oxygen oh. or any. No, no, no. You don't have a, an advanced no. base camp to come no. back to. And the thing was, in the 80s, Reinhold Mesner started the style of climbing without oxygen, light and fast. Now, you know, when he when his, his biggest light and fast is when he went to the north side of Everest and climbed the kind of his route there, which is a, com a combo route of the North Kuwar and stuff. He went there with um, his girlfriend, put up some, put some gear up, I think went up to 23,000 and... Um, dumped some gear, acclimatized, and then came and went round Tibet, kind of 15,000, 16,000. It probably went running up to dry hills at 20,000 to acclimatize, came back by himself, went from the advanced base camp at around, I think it's 19, went from 19 up to... 23, I think he probably spent the night at 23. But then he climbed super light and fast to the top of Everest and back, breaking trail. No Sherpas, styrofoam, snow, concrete trail to just kind of idle your way up. You know, he was breaking trail. That was light and fast, breaking all the barriers. Mm -hmm. And after that, my generation of high-altitude climbers that's what we wanted. Mm -hmm. He was our model, and we were trying to chase his heels and do stuff, you know, harder than that. Well, not harder, but in that style. In that style. And that was called climbing 8,000-meter peaks without bottled oxygen, light and fast. Because you can't spend a lot of time on it mm -hmm. <laughs> above 26,000 feet. It has to be fairly speeded up. And if, you can't, and if you're not super strong... And fit and good at altitude, which is a little bit of a gift as well. If you can't do that, 
don't go on that climb. Like, I shouldn't be climbing, you know, 514 cracks, right? I mean, I could probably aid my way up the damn things, right? Is that that's what they're doing on these big expeditions. They're aiding their way up a 514 crack. But, you know, the guy who just freed that 514 crack says, fuck you guys. Yeah. Stop aiding your way up. Yeah, yeah. Style, style yeah. does matter, obviously, and it's quite a controversial subject sometimes. Um, are you familiar with uh, Steve House and Vince Anderson's uh, Ascent of the RuPaul Fears? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for me, that's one of the most stylistic, and I'm, I'm also just totally biased. I'm a huge Steve House fan. Um, and so just to give some perspective of what I would think one of the the most stylistically well-accomplished climbs at altitude. It was Nanga Parbat, um, and it was 4,100 yeah. meters of climbing, and the grades are M559WI4. And I think as far as technical climbing goes, that's some of the hardest technical climbing ever achieved at those grades, to, to, to be climbing those kind yeah, of... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have all the details at my fingertips. I don't know where the technical climbing mm-hmm. was. I, I would say doing technical climbing under 23,000 is not only is it like possible, but the conditions on the mountain favor that. To get good conditions, you need it to suddenly, sometime come above freezing, even in the full sun, right? Because then it turns from powder into neve and white ice which then you can climb steeper technical terrain. You can't climb vertical power, right? You know, I mean, maybe you can hook to the rock behind it. Mm -hmm. um, And sometimes you get compacted, wind compacted powder, which is super bloody dangerous, but it doesn't usually stay at 90 degrees. You know, I mean, so that's why it changes. Um, So I don't know where the technical climbing, my guess is it was somewhere up to 23,500 feet. Because that's where the free store level starts to change, you know. It's very interesting. A little bit. Yeah. Mm. I mean, no, hey, I mean, I'm not, they're brilliant climbers. They were the leaders in their, at least in the American generation. Um, there were probably Poles, Czechs, and Russians doing similar yeah. stuff. Um, I don't think there are any British Brits. No, I don't think so. I don't see that. There might have been, well, the Canadians, you know, I mean, Barry Blanchard and team, but, you know, to be honest, you know, they they were lucky to survive Park the way they did it. And I'm sure that Barry now would recognise that and say, what were we thinking? How naive were we, you know, to keep pushing on in a stop because, oh, it's almost Monty Python like, right? I'm sure gonna get better. Should be better tomorrow. <laughs> Never do it. Should be better. Yeah. yeah. Barry know? has an amazing autobiography yeah. and they talk about I can't remember if it was Nanga Parbat or another climb they were doing. Um they actually abs- accidentally in a miscommunication dropped their ropes and they were pretty much on the side of the face and Ooh. they were gonna die. And they found they found a bag of an old Japanese ascent filled with like frozen filled with frozen rope that they had to chip out the rope it, it was almost it's almost like god came down and put a bag wow. yeah. somebody rope. dropped the rope it, it, it's an I mean, unbelievable story yeah i mean it, it's definitely 
a saga of real resilience and strength, but there's also a certain level of ignorance and naivete why they even got themselves into that position, position in the first place. In the first place, right? They'd have been, they'd have done way better as soon as the weather started getting bad, right? Was to use that where they were as acclimatization, maybe stash some deer, you know, so it wasn't as heavy coming back next time or whatever, or they could stay longer, drop down to base camp, wait for the storm to almost finish, pressure starts to go up, and they start to make their way back up, and then, you know, maybe up the glacier, the lower section during a little shitty weather, next day the weather's perfect, and then they might have a window of three days. <laughs> That's the way I would have done it, you know. <laughs> but, you know, that wouldn't have been the way I would have done it initially when I first went there. That probably took a while to experience, to know that, you know. And it's more likely you can do that nowadays because you get weather forecasting where, but, but you do know in Pakistan that, you know, you get a storm never lasts. It's not like Nepal where you get a storm of one day, like an afternoon snowstorm. And then next day, it's beautifully blue skies. That often happens a lot in Nepal. It doesn't happen in Pakistan like that a lot. Mm. Normally, it's three to five days of shit weather. So, you know, you're going to climb up in the shit weather, risk all avalanches, run out of food one day below the top and end up trying to fight your way out of it. Because mm. that's basically what they did, right? If they would have been, it's a pity because if they'd have actually done that, they're all strong enough. And even Ward Robinson, who was getting sick and stuff, would have recovered. And they were, all four of them would have just gone back up and done it. And I'm, they may have climbed it then. So, you know, experience. And Barry, Barry would acknowledge that now, I'm sure. Part of the learning process, I think, right? And I mean, I'm sure he was incredibly experienced at the time. It, it, it's just one of those things I don't know from experience, but I can imagine I've made my fair share of uh, mistakes and things. And it's always hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Yeah, it definitely seems like these kind of these kind of objectives up in in these high alpine areas. It's it's not how good you can climb. It's not how skilled you are, how fit you are. It's more of this like understanding of the the process and and the the terrain and the environment that you're in that really pays off in the end. Um, and I mean, obviously you have to have it all. Yeah. I mean, having it all gives you a better chance and gives you a harder, it gives you a chance of a harder objective. I think if you want to survive yeah. in those environments, having the fitness and all those things and the experience is just a given. Yeah. Yeah. So we're about to go into these bigger topics uh, and stories of your actual attempts and successful attempts on these some big objectives before I just want to dive a little bit into the sheer logistics of an expedition in Pakistan and Nepal. And I think reading your book, um, the, the Burgess Book of Lies, I think one of the biggest things that that shook me was just how involved the, the process of getting all this gear to the base camp of where you're trying to set up really was. And, and we'll talk about specifics on each of these objectives, but one that struck me the most was K2. It took you two weeks to get from the airport the to the base of the mountain. Two freaking weeks. Like that, yeah. that is the longest approach I've ever heard of in my life. And, oh, no, and, and you're dealing with hundreds of porters and food. And so talk to us a little bit about- Two, two weeks is actually not bad. 
Oh, no? No, Eversley Winter took us three opponents. Jeez, okay. So, yeah, let's just talk a little bit about the sheer logistics of an expedition. Like, because, you know, you, uh, Kathmandu seems to be like the place that you keep flying into for well, all these Nepal. places. Well, Nepal. From Nepal. Yeah. And so, you know, you're, I'm just going to kind of give you a brief summary of some of the stuff I'd like you to dive into. Like, you're having to find all the food for the trip for not only you and the climbers, but for the porters. You, it's the amount of time you're spending doing it's the politics of dealing with customs and and people and bringing everything oh, yeah. in and like who's organizing this entire attack plan so just like briefly talk to us about just okay. the logistics well, of setting I'll something you, up like this first of all it starts out with how much money you've raised does that because you can always pay people to do part of the work mm-hmm. like you can find an office in Kathmandu which is the outfitter, where you have to have somebody there to deal with the Ministry of Tourism. So you have to pay a fee to some outfitter, and the outfitter will probably find your Sherpa's staff. Like it used to be Mountain Travel Nepal. They called it Mountain Travel, and Jimmy Roberts, an ex-Gurkha officer, um, he started one of the first, he started trekking in Nepal, and he ran this office. So then we would be using telexes, <laughs> not faxes even, right? Telexes to communicate briefly with him and then he would communicate with the Ministry of Tourism to get the permits. Then he would have to bank wire, transfer money across, which wasn't that difficult, um, to the Ministry of Tourism to buy the permit. Now, back in the day, the permits weren't that expensive. You know, the permit for... Um, Dowlagiri, which is sixth highest, um, I think was like $2,500. You know, so split six ways, whatever, and we raised some money. I mean, you know, that wasn't that bad. Now, you've got to get... So there's two ways of doing this. Um, Big expeditions, like the Canadian Everest Expedition, they had a major sponsor called Air Canada that flew all the shit out to Kathmandu for free, right? Yeah. That's a major sponsor. Um, the K2 trip, British K286 trip, one of the main sponsors, it, actually, I mean, the main sponsor was um, a brewery in uh, London, a London brewery, right? Because they wanted to make this K2 lager or whatever. But, you know, they gave us the money. But one of the largest sponsors, unrecognized or unknown, was actually, I think it was British Airways. And it was, it was either Pan Am or British Airways. It was an airline commit one of our climbing friends worked at in London Heathrow. And he shoved all this gear, all our gear on for free. Scammed it, went on for free, you know. And we didn't, you know, we only took what we needed for the mountain. Now, when you've got free air freight, you can consider sending packaged food, you know, Mars bars and whatever you want, you know, from the US, right? That The freight of an expedition is the biggest single cost. Mm. More than the permit fees. Well, nowadays for every 10 grand a head, I don't know. But, but no, but shipping food or shipping equipment is the biggest single cost, air freighting it. Mm. Now, so lightweight expeditions, like we were on both sides of them, you know, if 
uh, can, if Canadian ever said to production, said, hey, Al, do you want to come on this expedition? Sure. It's going to be my, you know, I'm homeless, basically. It's going to be feed me for the next three months. <laughs> you know, there's going to be side benefits, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, yeah, oh, sure. But if it's like putting together a small trip like Dalagiri, it's going to be, well, is there another way around this? Yes. Um, you buy all your food over there. Mm. You don't, you, we had a, with our team, we would say, this is what it goes, guys. We allowed two 65-pound bags. That used to be what was allowed for free on airlines. <laughs> it's not that anymore. <laughs> now, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> used to be two 65-pound bags with, with economy class. Wow. You got that, wow. right? But then you had your hand baggage. Yeah. So the gear and equipment and tents and stuff like that, you know, generally speaking, you would send out in your personal baggage. But your hand baggage, I used to carry any all the food I was going to eat high up on the mountain, any speciality foods that I felt I could like, you know, would titillate my palate to eat when you do not feel like eating. Mm-hmm. And that would be all kinds of odd little What were stuff. your favorites? And often I never ate them. But it would be, you know, that's what you would have. You would have whatever your particularly food fetish was. Which was what? Well, mine, uh, early on, it was probably like cans of tu- good cans of tuna fish. Okay. You know, it would be... Um, like <laughs> that is not guess. what I was going <laughs> to guess at all. <laughs> <laughs> that was not what I was going to guess. Powdered potato, like instant potato. I can see that, yep. Packets of soups. Okay. Good packets of soups. And I was never a big candy bar thing, you know, because chocolate melts anyway over there and stuff. I mean, I'm sure I took some kind of equivalent of power bar. You sound like a cheap date. Well, you know what? (laughs) The big thing, my brother and myself used to say, when you were making food for this, you only got two of everything. because. The first time it was novel, and the second time you choked it down, <laughs> and the third time you would have thrown it away. Gotcha. So you had variety. That's a quick attrition rate. Yeah. Food, yeah. So that variety. Now, later on, <laughs> later on, I, I ate what Sherpas ate because it felt better. So in base camp, I would go and eat in the Sherpa kitchen. Everyone else was eating these. Salisbury steaks that with sauce on them that you basically came in an envelope that you dropped in boiling water and then you had with mashed potato and you know and the real bad thing about it is when you vomit that shit down through your nose it hurts <laughs> so what I would eat would be dalbat lentils lentil soup chapatis rice curried vegetables and then higher on the mountain, they have this stuff called rildoxin, which was like um, a type of mashed potato, um, whole wheat grain. And it ended up looking like a, a yak, I call it yakshi. It looked like a big yakshi, <laughs> right? A half a yakshi. And it tasted bland. It was high carbo. That was the thing about it. 
And the big thing about it, you eat it with this bowl of super spicy garlic, ginger, and chili sauce, runny, very runny. You would grab a piece of this stuff, make it into a bowl, put your thumb in it, so now it's like a spoon. Spoon this up and eat that. And the spice has made the bland stuff palatable. But long-chain carbos, I never had to eat anything during the day. Mm. Yeah, that was what I yeah. ate. And I slept better. I didn't, you know, just eventually that's the kind of food I was eating. I think on the Canadian Everest expedition, I ate two candy bars. And it was like, you know, and it didn't last long. It gives you a fast sugar high. Yeah. Whereas this long chain carbo stuff, I could I could be operating for eight hours and not need to eat. Yeah. But, you know, hey, not everybody, you know, I mean, I was living a long time in Nepal. So, you know, Dalbat for me was everything. I mean, you know, I could eat, uh, providing I had enough chili on it, you know, it had to be spicy. And, and so uh, after you figure out the food and stuff, yeah. like how many... Porters, are you hiring? Well, on then a trip? again, again, that depends on it depends on the trip, how many people are on the trip. Um, you buy all local food. Now in Nepal, you don't have to provide the porters with food. Okay. In Pakistan, you do because there are no villages along the route, mm-hmm. right? So you've they've got to cook their own food, and it's just two systems. In Nepal. You put in these bamboo baskets that they doko baskets to put in all the food and stuff in. Um, you've got we would have food for say advanced base camp, lots of raw noodles, perhaps, soups, thing. You can buy soups, you know, tea, sugar, milk, dried milk. Um and then for base camp, you know, those those staples like you needed oils, you know, oils for cooking, flour. Uh, tea, sugar, dried milk, sugar, all all that lentils, beans. But then you had fresh stuff. So we would try and buy the fresh stuff as close to the mountain as possible. So we wouldn't buy it in Kathmandu. Why would you buy a cauliflower in Kathmandu and then walk it for two weeks when the last village had cauliflower? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. You know, because you didn't have to pay for the porterage. So we had all this totally down. Now, super well-funded expeditions and stuff, they're carrying all kinds of stuff in there, you know. And and at the end of it, you have to sell it off because they never eat it all. Mm. Um, so, so it's all economics. But we got into the stage where we could eat like a local, um, even almost climb like a little bit like a local, and um, it kept the cost down. It kept the cost way down, you know. And eventually, I mean, we had a stash of gear. I had a stash of gear out in Kathmandu in these big blue airtight drums, tents, sleeping bags, my down suit, down jackets, second sleeping bag for base camp. I all I had it in Kathmandu. So that ice axe, crampons, I never had to pay for the ship. pay for the shipping again. And what would happen? Typically, particularly with, say, East European expeditions, you know, whether it was still the Soviet Union kind of area, they would um, be dollar poor, but food rich. Because a lot of them used to get flights in Lot Airline from Poland. They'd have 
cans of Polish pork and loads of food like that, right, get flown in for free. But they didn't have dollars to pay for it. So they would bring extra stuff, sell it to the local stores, and, and after the expedition, sell it to pay off people. So they so we would buy their old fixed rope. And some of their fixed rope, it's okay, static line, you know, you're not climbing on it. And ice screws made in Russia, Russian titanium ice screws before they were ever sold commercially. Snow stakes, dead men. Ice, I mean, all that stuff we'd buy in Kathmandu from the trekking shops. And the main thing was, you didn't have to buy it, get deals on it, or ship it. Maybe we'd have some, you know, better ice screws or something for lead climbing or something like that, you know. But for there, you're just fixing a line or something, right? It, it doesn't make a difference. It's just yeah, cheap, yeah. saving on the economy, not shipping around the world, better yeah. logistically. And, 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 yeah, yeah. And, and we didn't know about ice threads. If we, yeah, the V threads. The V threads and stuff, you know. If we'd have known about those... That would have certainly helped on ice route. So that would have made a huge difference. It would have made a alpine style and other stuff repelling would have been made possible. I mean, I do remember one expedition on Manaslu. We didn't have enough snow stakes, right? And it's going to be for fixing on fairly deep. I mean, it might be soft snow in the afternoon, frozen at night. We ended up, I cut a load of juniper stuff this long. Of you know thickness of my thumb and stuff, two together, and I cut a V slot, buried them, buried them, peed on them, so they froze. You knew they weren't powder, and that was where the fixed line was tied to. You just don't tell your clients that, right? No. Yeah. Well, we weren't guiding. We were in our own. I know. I'm just kidding. Right? <laughs> but that was just that was as good as a snow sure. stick. Yeah. Wow. It was like burying an ice axe in it. Yeah. So yeah, good. so there was there was one other little trick that we I'm not saying we invented it, but we definitely refined it. I'm not sure who did, but it was when you was any gear that you did ship into Kathmandu, into the old airport it used to be, was um if it was an expedition, basically what they would do, the customs officials would just shift it into a a lock-up shed, like, you know, warehouse. And then you had to bribe people to get it out of there. And you were supposed to pay a customs fee on it, and it was all <coughs> bribable. It was just creating hoops to jump through so that they could kind of squeeze the cash out of you. So we had this system where this one, I think it was the Dalagiri, it was the Dalagiri expedition. Canadian Dalagiri expedition, super low budget, only six of us. Um, I was already there. So, but you, you weren't allowed to go into the um, custom shed from outside, right? So I came in through the back, flashed my driver's license at the guy on the door, and I can't remember what I said, security or something. You know, I just walked straight past him. They just went, yes, sir. (laughs) And then once I got in there, what they would do, the strategy, you know, I think we had quite a few boxers, like 80 or 60 boxers, you know, coming in, you know, and it's to split them up so it doesn't look like an expedition. 
No expedition stickers and labels all over the outside. No, that's a no-no, right? Split them up into about three or four customs officials because they have a, a table in front of them, right? And then you put stuff up there and they search it and just, you know, I don't know who knows what they're looking for. Well, they're looking for all kinds of free shit is what they're looking for. So, but what you do, but you put the stuff down below the table and then you engage the person, the, the officer there, looking through a bag and he found film, right? And you wait, oh, maybe you'd like a couple for your your wife to take photographs of your children, right? You fucking engage him like that. Meanwhile, I, on the other side here, have different colored felt tip pens because what they used to do, they used to change colors and I would just do a quick, I, I don't know even if it was just a day for the day, but I would see it on other because what they would do, they would mark it on there, and then that would allow it get got past the guard on the exit. Because the the guard just looked to see the mark on the bag. So I would just look to see what mark they were making, what colour it was, copy it on the boxes, and then have porters from the outside come in, because they can come in as porters, and then they would just shift all this shit out so quickly out of the custom shed. That, and everybody was like, my God, where's it all gone, right? <laughs> and it had all gone so quickly, we never paid a cent, right? You know, it was already out in taxis, loaded, ready to go, you know. And I had the, the felt pens, you know, and could speak pretty reasonable Nepali and stuff. So I could say this to the porters, hey, like, Johnny, take that, <laughs> and mark them all up. <laughs> and so we were doing this with duffel bags and all kinds of stuff. And the open personal bags would open up on the front. Just distracting. Yeah, like we were there one time. I think Peter Hillary was coming in and he had for an Everest expedition at the same time. I don't know if we were there, but he told me this. He said, I had ladders for the Kumbu Icefall, you know, like stages ladders, you know, up to 30 foot long. But, you know, they had, they all slid in to probably like, 10 foot or something or 12 foot ladders and they had a whole bunch of them and um, these are coming into customs and he, yeah, the custom guy said yes sir where are you going I'm going to Everest Base Camp you're going to trekking sir yes yes because there's loads of trekkers going into Everest Base Camp and he went the guy said and what are these ladders they have to get to Everest Base Camp. <laughs> I don't think you need these ladders, sir, to get to Everest Base Camp. Pete Hilly says, you mean I brought these ladders all the way from New Zealand <laughs> and I don't need them? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it probably gave the guy a little tip or whatever. Uh -huh. Fucking they all went out. <laughs> so you have to know that stuff, right? I don't think that any of that would apply today, <laughs> would it? Uh, do you think that this is solid advice for someone trying to get stuff through customs? Well, I, I would say it probably, I would say ship very little. Yeah. Because you can buy everything, everything in Kathmandu now, yeah. now, so you don't need to. But, you know, if you've got a big old commercial Everest expedition, you're going to pay. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, you're paying everybody from word go yeah. to get the permit. You are taking officers from, from the Indian Mount, from the um, Nepali Ministry of Tourism out for dinner 
frequently to assure your permit. You're bringing bottles of scotch in for them. You know, good Brahmins don't drink, right? Uh, not in not in front of their wives, possibly. But, you know, I mean, there's all that. A lot of politics. There aren't as many expeditions now. They're all commercials. Yeah. It's all gone commercial. The type of trips that we do in Dalagiri now, I don't know if anybody's ever doing them now. I doubt it. I just doubt it. Okay, so. Yeah. Last thing before we talk into your stories. What drew you to high alpine expeditions rather than starting to push yourself on a more technical basis what was the allure there was a tradition in england rock climbing at home scottish ice climbing alpine climbing in chamonix dolomites go to the greater ranges which was relatively new around that time we were kind of at the front end of that there was there were, there'd been university expeditions doug scott had driven to North Africa, and he'd gone to Afghanistan. But it wasn't, you know, I mean, we drove overland, you know, in, what was it, eight, nine, uh, 74. So that people used to drive there, not fly there. There was a tradition of that. Now then, you know, people like Mesner, Bonington was doing the big expeditions. We wanted to be in that. It was a natural place to go and you know honestly if we think about how that worked out Ed and I were decent technical climbers but we were not at the very top of technical climbing either on ice or rock we were up we were up there for our ages and stuff like that but you know there were better people around I mean we mixed with them um when you take, but we were fit and strong. So if you take that, you don't, for alpine climbing, you don't need that. You're not climbing 512 or rarely. Now you might, but then you weren't um, on these routes. So we were, our technical ability made us fast enough on these alpine and super alpine routes because we were very strong and fit and had enough technical skills. You know, we were climbing, I mean, to try to monitor what this means. I mean, it's like back in the 70s, um, if you're climbing 10C or, or 10A even on granite or gritstone, whatever, you're probably climbing okay, but somebody's probably climbing 11A or B. We weren't climbing. We were climbing more like the 10C level back then. So we were good alpine climbers because we were strong. Now, once we went to a high altitude, our abilities actually really jumped. Because then we were climbing with guys who were good alpinists and good technical climbers. We were stronger than they were at altitude. I think that was just the, the gifted nature. And then after a while, it might have been just we were just there long enough, many times. But, you know, don't forget, when we were 20, our heart rates were 36, right? Just see how, um, well, you know, in 86, you know, when I came back 
of a K2, you know, my hematocrit was a Sherpa acclimatization of 50%. You know, never went above, didn't drop below. I could go to 20,000 feet at any day of the week. I could probably have run there from 10,000. You know, I could have, I was, we were so fit and strong. And so at altitude, it seemed like as most people seem to get worse and weaker, we became better compared to our our other fr- climbing friends. You unlocked some sort of superpower that. Well, you we we had just inside. we had that. Yeah. We were just naturally good at that, mm-hmm. and so that's we kind of stayed there. And also, that's where our that's interest lay. And that's you know during the eighties, trying to climb eight thousand meter peaks without oxygen as a small group, fast and light. That was where it was at. Mm-hmm. We wanted to be climbing like Mesner. That's who we wanted to be, that's you know. Sport was focused. That's where this, yeah. That's where it was. Then, if you're going to be, I mean, you know, if you think about Randall Mesner's life, he started out being a really good bloody rock climber, soloing super hard stuff in the Dolomites and so on, and then he became a really good alpine climber, soloing things like the, I don't know, if it was the second ascent or an early ascent of the north face of the Dwat in eight hours, when it used to take three days before that. Wow. Right demonstrating his skill on ice. Then he went, you know, with Peter Harbler, they started climbing 8,000 meters fast. And his thing on Everest, you know, the first time in Everest, you know, was on a big team. It was kind of piggybacking on a big team. Um, but then he went back. I think he thought that's kind of, I don't know what his mindset was, but he went back shortly afterwards and soloed it without oxygen. And then he is going to Hidden Peak you know, and doing these other 8,000-meter peaks really fast. Well, you know, and climbing all the 8,000-meter peaks, super lightweight, you know, and different styles. You know, he had some economies going on. But, I mean, I remember when he, in 86, when I was on that Swiss guided thing, when I was guiding this person, he was doing these last of the 8,000-meter peaks on Lopsey. Him and, I think it was Conan Beater. It was super windy on, on Everest, on the peak. And he's coming, they've just summited and they're walking back down through the Cumbu Icefall. I'm the first person out there to go and see him. And I shake his hand and I went, fuck man, super well done. And he looked at me and he said, Alan, you could not have climbed on Everest today. Because he knew I was thinking, if fucking they just summited Lotsey, why I wasn't on Everest? Because the wind was blowing across the ridge and it said we were climbing, the wind was helping us up behind us. Wow. So he knew, but he knew what I was thinking, right? We were in the same group, not as strong, not as good, but we were, he understood what we were trying to do as yeah. well. Yeah. We were staying within his ethic. He started the ethic, really. And, and you know, we were disciples of that ethic. Now it's gone a lot. You know, I mean, maybe um, some of the guys doing the super fast, you know, Himalayan stuff, nonstop and all that. That's a rejuvenation of that ethic, really. Like David Lama? Uh, Uli Steck, David Koyser, they're doing stuff like that. Killian Journey, he's been doing really fast ascents of Everest. Um, I'm sure there's lots of other names, but in general, there are a few subset of people doing oxygen-less, very fast ascents. There are, but it's hard. But on Everest right now, it's pretty hard. If you're doing it super fast on the normal route, 
That's not. I mean, that's like that's concrete. That's fixed lines all the way and concrete trail. If you want to do it on Everest now, go to the North Kuwa. Nobody's got a permit for that. You'll get a permit dead easy. Solo that without a trail and fixed lines because that's where it's at. And I mean, it's, and it was done. I don't know when it was back in the in the eighties that you know. But the ethics gone towards guiding all those people just became guides. And and so you've got to understand if you're just climbing Everest in twenty four hours, yeah, like from what you know, up a trail. Who did anybody carry? You know what? Yeah. You've got to measure it out because yeah. it's not. You know, I mean, I could probably, I could probably go back to Everest now, and I wouldn't be the oldest guy climbing it because I think an old Japanese guy went back up. But knowing how they're climbing it, give give myself one year of training, stop drinking beer for oh, three months, <laughs> and then and then you know. With oxygen, ah, nothing to it. Yeah, yeah. You it's know. definitely. I mean, it's just different, and and that's what I think high altitude climbing, where people like Everest, the marketing and stuff, has taken over. It's taken over from that eighties golden age of high risk, high altitude climbing, when climbers were strong, fit, and kind of. Chancy, you had to, you know, you pushed it. But if you were strong enough, you did it safely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's let's uh, let's dive into these stories. And I think this is a perfect top topic to talk about your first attempt on Everest. And it's interesting to me that your first high alpine climb, you went straight for Everest. It seemed like that was your no, no, no. no? When was this? This was no your the first, first attempt on the West Ridge. Oh, the West Ridge. Yeah. Yes, of course. West Ridge in winter. In okay. Winter, yeah. So now to explain, this is a whole different little subset which has probably shriveled and died right now. But so in ha, the Alps, ha, has the West Ridge been completed since, or is there like was it your, not in winter? Not in winter. Not, in not winter. since. No, no. Well, we never summited it. I know you didn't, but has anybody since? No, not in winter. Wow. They may have done in summer. Wow. Okay. Or spring fall. Um, so. In alpine climbing, back in the European Alps, there was climbing the north face of the Eiger, climbing the north face of the Matterhorn. Then there was climbing the north face of the Matterhorn in winter, climbing the north face of the Eiger in winter. Different conditions, but same equipment as you were climbing in summer back then. We didn't have Gore-Tex. We didn't, you know, there was lots of stuff that was not around, technical gear, especially in ice tools and clothing. Um, so people went back to climb them in winter. And, you know, if you did a winter, there's a huge difference doing the north face of the Eiger in winter compared to doing the north face of the Eiger in summer in, in decent conditions when there used to be ice on it and stuff, you know, now it's drier. But, and, and, Winters were then minus 30, minus 40. Now they're not, right? But so back then, particularly in the 70s and 80s, climbing north faces in the European Alps in winter was a step up. I don't know what the difference would be 
here. Um, I don't know how to make a comparison um, in North American terms. Um, in, Can in Canadian terms, yes, you could say climbing the Grand Central Couloir on Mount Kitchener, doing it in, say, April, May, when the days are longer, the temperatures are warmer, but it's still freezing at night, and doing it in January. A huge difference. It, it was especially a huge difference back in, say, the 70s and 80s. Huge difference. Um, I mean, first of all, you probably wouldn't go to Kitchener in the fucking summer because there's rocks barreling down. That's why we went to it in winter to try it originally. But I'm talking about alpine climbing from summer alpine climbing to doing the same route in winter. So that then, that same ethic moved to the Himalaya. So all these routes have been done in the easiest season, in the warm season, in the spring, uh, in May, with April, May, when you, you're low on the mountain in April, and it's getting warmer by the day as you climb higher up the mountain. Not that cold. Cold enough, but not minus 45, you know, minus 60. Uh, with winter winds, that's a whole different ballgame. So then the Nepalese started selling winter permits. So now it was let's go back and climb Everest in winter or climb K2 in winter, which, is, by the way, has just been done. By a Sherpa team. Oh, wow. Right? I don't know if it was last year or the year before. Um, the Polish were some of the first ones to try doing this shit in winter. And actually, they climbed Everest in winter. I don't know exactly what date it was. It might have been just outside of the Nepali winter season. But for me, they climbed it in winter conditions. You know, they did. So, I mean, people can be technically... I know Alan Rouse, you know, the leader of our West Ridge Winter Expedition, was saying, you know, we were going to be the first to climb it. No, we're going to be the first to climb the West Ridge in winter, not Everest. The Poles had climbed it, no matter what Rouse said. And you, and you at this point, had never been to Everest before. No. So you're no. like, all right, I'm going to go to Everest. I've never been there before. I'm going to climb it in the winter, and I'm also going to climb a route that no Actually, one's ever done. We'd only been to Nepal once before in the fall season, post-monsoon of 79. So this was now the post-monsoon and winter of 80. So it was basically 14 months, 15 months later. So what enticed you about that challenge, Al? Um, the thought, I mean, it seems a little crazy to say you've only been to Nepal once and then to go, okay, I'm going to go try this route on Everest in the winter. I think, I think realistically, it probably was, you know. But we, no, but it was just like this big adventure because you know what? We didn't, nobody knew much about winter in the Himalayas. The Polish did because they'd been there. Very other few people had been there. They couldn't tell you what it was like in winter. We didn't know about the jet stream dropping way down and 100 mile an hour winds, you know, above, say, 24,000 feet. We didn't know that. Um, so when we went, I think it was very, you know, it was bold 
Um, well, put it put it this way: the next winter, I think it was the next winter, we went back to Annapurna Four in winter. Annapurna Four was twenty five seven rather than twenty nine, and you could dig ice caves all the way up it. You didn't need to use tents, and it was non technical climbing. So. Everest in winter, we learned a lot. We got our asses kicked on Everest, on Everest West Ridge in winter. But we did get up to 24,000. I mean, we made a good effort. And it was technical on the West Ridge because it was a West Ridge direct thing. So it was kind of technical. Um, it's on YouTube, that, that whole four series. Because made, we made a film on it, you know. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it shows the conditions and shit. Yeah, know. check it out. I've never oh, seen yeah, it. it's on YouTube. Oh, just put in British Winter Everest Expedition. Okay. Like four parts of it. Um, oh. But, you know, it was hard to make a film then because it was, it was fucking 16 millimeters, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. the cameraman came up to 20,000 foot and lived in a snow cave, yeah. an ice cave with us. But, but we took that information in winter and went back and successfully climbed Annapurna 4 in winter. Which was a bloody high peak, and we were be- we understood better acclimatization. You know, when we dug an ice cave at twenty one, and then from went from there to the summit. We didn't try and put a tent up anywhere above there. It was like you don't try. You know, high altitude camping in winter is a non-starter. So, what do you think were some of your biggest takeaways from your first experience climbing Everest in winter? What, what were the, in your estimation, the um, largest challenges that you faced with that you learned from? Well, I think there are a couple of challenges there. Um, winds, the winds high up, but also you need to have a good solid base camp. We didn't. Everest in winter was a shitty base camp. We had a broken down French family tent as the base camp cook tent. Nowadays, they build stone cottages with tarps over the top that are super comfortable. When we went back to um, Madisloo in winter, which was two years later, I had, we took from Canada, we took what they got purple insulation, right? That I, we built a little house at the bottom at the base camp. There's only 14 and a half thousand foot, that base camp. And Two big top blue tarpaulins over, layered, insulated with fiberglass insulation in between, right? And we took charcoal to keep a small fire heating the place at base camp. Our base camp in, and we had good water. I knew better about hygiene. I had Jardia so many bloody times on that expedition and was sick. Half the team was stomach sick half the time because the Sherpas were walking up the glacier where all the bloody crap is from the other years, you know, from the other seasons of expeditions, chipping the ice or collecting ice run from during the day. And they, they weren't, they were boiling it. We're at bloody 17,000 feet. They should have been iodizing it. They should have been boiling and iodizing it and keeping it in big blue drums as purified water to cook with. They weren't. We were all getting sick. I mean, I had 
we had the shit. I had swallowed more fucking drugs and that against anti-shit <laughs> and antibiotics, you know, which doesn't really help your fucking no. fitness, yeah. you know. Sounds like a nightmare. Oh, no, it was. Yeah. It was. It's, I mean, it seemed like on that trip that Adrian was, was doing the strongest. Uh, and, I th- it and was. really wanted to push, but. Well, he did, but, you know, he didn't have information because the rest, the radio messages uh-huh. were not accurate. Yeah. He, we had a doctor there. Again, it's like you've seen the Black Knight on Monty Python, you know, yeah. who gets his limbs cut off and he says, come back and fight like a man, <laughs> right? <laughs> this doctor had three broken ribs from coughing, had stomach sick, and in base camp on the radio when we were all talking, he said, yeah, I'm prepared to come back up. What? Fucking there's no way he could get back up. I mean, so so people would, there was Joe, I mean, that whole expedition finished. Joe and Adrian were up at 24,000 feet, as high as we got. They were on the ridge at that point, right? Yeah, just on just reaching the ridge. Yeah. Adrian was going the stronger than Joe. Joe was hanging in, basically dogging Adrian and pushing Adrian. But they had this, I was at camp one at 20,000 feet in the ice cave. And we all had this three-way radio between base camp, me at camp one, and I can't remember who else was at camp one with me. And then those two up at the top camp. They're saying, well, come on, come on up. Come on up and support and put somebody else in the front to push the rope. And I'm trying to tell Adrian, I, I've got Jardia in fucking camp one, right? That's I'm on drugs and I'm fucking not strong enough, right? I know there's nobody's going anywhere. Base camp, they're just bullshitting. They're saying, well, I don't know, just, yeah, we're, we're prepared to stay and help. They weren't. No, and I couldn't be that much help. And camp one, the other guy with me or whatever was there, we weren't helping either. And nobody realized, nobody at base camp, our rouster leader was not saying, look, guys, this expedition is over. Because expeditions normally finish in two ways, commonly finished, not normally, commonly. Summit is reached, get out of there, or there's a death on the mountain, then you get out of there on the summit day. And it was, I was convinced that if Adrian, if Joe was pushing Adrian, they were at 24,000 without oxygen. The winds were fucking howling. Another thousand foot, 1,500 foot higher, they couldn't even put a tent up. Anything. There's no ice cave. The fucking wind had stripped the mountain of all snow and stuff up there. So you've got to go from 24-6, say, to 29 and back without oxygen in a day in winter with those winds. Not possible. Not possible. So it would have been just killing. It would have just been a suicide Mm -hmm. thing. I think Aid probably knew that. I think he wanted to push a bit harder. But there's also this of, well, what, what, what's the end of the expedition going to say? Is it going to be say, um, Joe didn't want to go on anymore, or Aid didn't want to go anymore, mm-hmm. or Rouse, our Rouse should have just said, look, guys, let's be realistic here. This is the scenario of the people in base camp, camp one, and you guys. You guys want to come down, you're good, you should. You've been up there a few days, you're tired. Nobody else down here is strong enough to help to push back up. He should have, the expedition 
is over. Let's get off this mountain without anybody dying. But I was trying to say this over the radio in code to my brother without saying, look, Ed, everybody in base camp was fucking talking about coming up. It's like the fucking Black Knight. <laughs> nobody's coming up, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, nobody's coming up. I can tell you that. Um, and then some of those in base camp, if I'd have said that, would have said, yes, I'll come back up. Fixed him with his broken ribs would have said, yeah, I'll come back up. Yeah, right. What are you going to fucking do? Yeah. You know, what help are you going to be? You know, it's like there's a time and a place. And that's basically how that expedition ended. And in the film, you'll see Aid. I go to meet Aid. He's coming down. He's coming into base camp. And the, the cameraman's there. Right, and the camera's a personal friend. He's a great guy, Mike. And I'm going out to see Aid, basically to tell him what's going on, yeah. to meet him on the glacier. And when I'm there, Aid's kind of mumbles this, when the mind gives up, the body ceases to function. And he kind of glares at me as though, why didn't you fucking push him? Mm-hmm. But I couldn't tell him there under the camera, well, Aid, you know, I told him afterwards, yeah. but it was up, but he got it on camera. And that's a little bit of the key end of the movie, of the expedition, of Aid and me, me looking like I'm um, downhearted, but, I, but really it's because I'm trying to fucking tell you what's going on. Yeah. And Adrian's pissed because it's like, why are we not getting any support? Well, you're not getting supported. It's everybody's fucking neck. <laughs> and two people have already left. And two people had already left yeah. the expedition. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it was just not happening, wow. you know. And, it, and I'm sure there's a little bit of Adrian in there, like, well, I was the last one pushing. Yeah. You know. That's fair. So that's fair enough. You know, he got that. Um, and that's there, you know. But what did we learn? Yeah, we learned a proper base camp where you're not all sick all the time. Stomach sick, no altitude. Yeah. Um, and pick an objective which is realistic for your team. If Everest in winter, Westridge, if we'd have been using climbing Sherpas and oxygen and all that sort of stuff and a big team, it was probably possible. So it hasn't been done up to this point. I don't think. I don't think so. Interesting. I don't think so. Wow, that's it's a fucking crazy. long ridge. That's and crazy. You know what? It's it's after after the expedi- winter expeditions, it was a very short period of time. Um, like we were some, I bet we had more permits. We had Everesting, well, Everesting winter. We went back the next year for um, Annapurna falling winter and summited. Next year, we went back to Manaslu in winter when I was the expedition leader and we got nailed at 24,000. Couldn't, you couldn't put a tent up above there. And unless you can go and plus, and we had good support. We didn't have oxygen, but we had good Sherpa support. You know, we didn't have a super strong team, but Adrian and I were strong enough. And it, with that Sherpa support, we could have done, but we got to the high camp. We were, we were up around 24-6, crawling on our hands and knees on 45-degree neve ice, right? Because of the winds. Because the winds just blew through. Unless you could go from the ice cave at 22,000, up to 26 and back. But once you got up to that level, you couldn't really stand up even. 
It was just so strong, the winds. And the winds are specific to the winter? Yeah. Yeah, because the jet stream drops. Yeah, so what is it? Talk to us a little bit about the jet stream. Like what well, the jet stream is like that high-altitude winds that control the climate above the normal climate zones. So normally the jet streams are above 26,000. I don't know what technically how high, they, well, they go up as high as probably 40,000 feet, but I don't know how low they drop. But in winter, they will drop below 26, down to around 25,000 feet. Now, they may not, they might go up and down, up and down, I don't know. But, you know, maybe you can get a, a lucky day when the jet stream's raised and then you can hit 26 on that day. Well, basically, if you're in a jet stream, it's a no-go. You're not going anywhere. You're crawling. You're crawling. I mean, the, the poles did it. The poles did do that. But, you know, they were using uh, fixed lines and a big team. You know, they needed, I mean, they did exceptionally well. Yeah, I think I, I think I read a, a caveat on, on the book where Adrian was saying that I think it was on the West Ridge where he was literally like getting pulled up off yeah. the ridge, just like yeah. floating yeah. attached to the rope, yeah. Yeah. just like lifting you off the ground. Well, there was one one day outside the camp, the ice cave at 20,000 foot on the Lolar Col. It was blowing, the wind blow different directions from Tibet off to Tibet. This was blowing slightly downhill slope into Tibet. And a pack that had been left outside, like a 50-pound pack, blew down the glacier. You imagine a 50-pound, I mean, we're not talking a 50-pound pack, you know, slick nylon. We're talking just like a backpack thrown out there. Mm. Fucking was blown like half a mile down the glacier. It's how strong the winds were. That's crazy. And and so the year after Manaslu, we went back again in winter trying to choose an objective. We went to Amadablam in winter, which is only 22.6, right? But technical. Right, and we went there. Um, there were three Westerners and one Sherpa. And the Sherpa eventually, a friend of mine, decided not to go. But on the last, we fixed some rope. All that got stripped because of the vibrations on the rock and stuff. We went back up, fixed the rope. We were sat behind this. Um, it was on one side of the ridge. So this is a granite ridge here, and we were sat bivouacking there. Right, and bits of rock, pebbles and rocks, the size of not the size of your fist, smaller like golf balls, were blowing over the ridge. And when you leaned on back onto this granite wall, it sounded like there was a generator in the bloody. You were leaning on a generator housing because the wind was hitting the other side of the ridge, and that was creating the vibration in the wow. ridge itself. The whole mountain was shaking. The whole bloody mountain was, <laughs> you know. And so after that, we didn't go back in winter. I mean, you know, yeah. guess it, it just seemed like we tried, you know. And there's certain you could go back to easier peaks, lower easier peaks in winter. But you know, when was that? That was been '84. We started going back after that in the fall and stuff, mm -hmm. and spring. So. Chronologically here, at least in, in the book, uh, it, we went from the West Ridge of Everest to Dalagiri. Um, yeah. What just kind of what, what was different about this objective? What was the kind of like plan of attack and, and what were the key points in terms of the experience well, and what you took away from there? Well, I think the size of the expedition wasn't that different right. in the way manpower 
I mean, what was it on? Everest in winter was like eight men or something, uh, but it was a higher peak. And it was in winter, which was the, the whole thing, really. Um, and it was a more technical climbing. How so? Just like steep snow or rock faces? No, no. I mean, lower down. I mean, I led a rock corner on Everest in winter that was 5'8". In plastic boots, and it was the overhanging rock corner. Now it was jugged, and it was under twenty thousand feet. Mm-hmm. Now you know, twenty thousand feet doing that is different than doing it at twenty-five thousand feet. And what was Dalagiri? Dalagiri is mainly snow and ice. Okay. Yeah, I would say there's some technical ridge on there and a narrow steep ridge, but basically snow and ice climbing. Okay. It wasn't walking though. And it wasn't okay. snow walking. You know. And you're building ice caves on this one? Uh, we built one ice cave, no, two ice caves. Uh, one at Advanced Base Camp, and then one up about, I think it was about 21, 22,000. Does it take you a full day to build these things? No, it took, we could build a two-man ice cave in about four or five hours. Wow. And then to do to make it a four-man ice cave, you know, it took two or three hours longer. And, stuff like that. And, and, yeah, I mean, I'm not familiar, Max, so you might be more versed than I am on this, mm-hmm. but ice caves, like... <sighs> Quickly discuss just the, the the tactic behind like the entrance and making sure it's not going to cave down on in you. Like. Well, it's, it depends on the what you're digging into. Mm-hmm. If I mean, I've dug ice caves in Canada where it was you were cutting blocks out, one foot square blocks of frozen snow. Well, building an ice cave like that is pretty fast, mm-hmm. right? But the, in that, the roof will crawl down. Even in one night, mm. it will crawl down. It will sink, sink. Yikes. Whereas if you're in blue ice, chip, chip, in really hard stuff, it's there. You know, it's not going to start sagging. Okay. And what we would do, typically, you, you start with a small hole. You dig down. You dig in. And if there's four people digging a form an ice cave, what you do is you have a, um, a rain a fly, rain fly placed outside so there's only one person can mine at the front, right? Digging, digging. And it could be using a shovel, but probably an ice axe if it's hard, really hard, you know, or something simple, or the ads of an ice axe. Um, and then shoveling it out, he just shovels it between his legs. The next guy behind him throws it out onto the tarp, and the tarp eventually just or throws it into the tarp. The tarp's dragged out and then tipped down the mountain, as it were. And it builds this big ledge out in the front of the ice cave. Um, now, once you've dug in about eight feet, probably. You down down first or just no, straight no, in? No, you go down and then in. Okay. And then you make it so that you can stand up here. So you've got to dig up, mm. right? So you dig a six-foot trench so I can stand up for say seven, eight feet in, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's the hardest bit because, a lot of because only one person can dig at the front. Yeah. Everyone else is shoveling out behind you, wow. between your legs. And then, you know, some normally if you've got four people, one guy is melting snow for a brew, for yeah. juice and all that stuff. And the other one person's emptying the tarp and then, you know, you're switching off. Because wow. it's hard work bending over. At fucking 22,000 feet, I can yeah. tell you, you know, being a miner. Now, once you get back in, <laughs> once you get in that far, uh-huh. now you're digging beds on each side, mm-hmm. sleeping platforms. And this sleeping platform doesn't, it needs to be at this height, not at, you know, not at ground level. 
So you're only digging out half the amount to half the height. But soon then, as soon as you get in part way, you can get everybody working. Yeah. You can get one person maybe digging out, one person digging the sleeping quarters mm-hmm. for two people and two people. So let's say five and a half foot, six foot wide by, you know, this height, you can sit up in it, mm-hmm. right? And then, and you know, you're digging this platform and then scraping it out because now the tarp is all the way in the bottom of the trench mm-hmm. and you fill that out, one person is digging and it becomes a production. That's, I think four people working, maybe four to six hours for a decent cave. It's fast. It yeah. seems fast to me yeah. for such a huge It is at altitude. Yeah. Yeah, no, but it, you can if you've done it before. And and do you have to worry about being buried in from the no, front? No, not, well, if it's good hard stuff, it's not going to come down. What about from the front, the hole itself that you get in and oh, out of? Oh, the front thing, you normally you'll build it. Well, this is the last job you do, really, is build blocks because you built a ledge by emptying, this is all the debris coming out the front. So now there's like a ledge up from the ice cave. And so you will extend the entrance out with snow blocks mm. so that you can close it off if you need to. I, I would close it off with a pack mm. so that spindrift doesn't come in mm-hmm. and cold air. But you need some air coming in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you might even put an ice axe up through the roof of the tunnel so you've got air coming in because you're burning stove. Uh, burning yeah, stove. carbon dioxide poison. So you do uh, need air. Big one. Yeah, you know, you need... You need air transfer in some ways, you know. Um, but then at night, you're not cooking. You can just close it off and, you know, go to sleep. And, you know, it's howling wind out there. And inside yeah. it's absolutely good. And if you do it, the colder it is, it doesn't even drip. Mm. It might drip while you over the cooking. Usually at the end of the tunnel you dig in, you do a platform and you have like, you know, two or four... MSR stoves there, burning with a big cook pot on it, melting snow. That's your cooking area. Everyone else is sitting. People, one person takes turns to cook, stand up and cook. You know. Max, have you been in an ice cave? Uh, no, I've never built officially one? done like an ice cave or anything. Um, I've hacked out quite a few tent platforms in some pretty bad conditions and not at altitude. And that's tiring enough. So, you know, at altitude, I can't even imagine. That's a, that's a lot of work. It's yeah, exhausting. it sounds gnarly. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, it's just. But one thing it sounds like such a safe haven, any, though. It's such a horrible it is, environment. But one thing, one thing. If anybody's listening to this, it goes out there and tries doing this. When, if you leave the ice cave, make sure that you have it marked, because the snow will cover, and you will not find the entrance to where all your shit is inside anymore. Uh-huh. The best way to do that is to leave a rope inside, let the rope inside anchored, drag the rope outside, and then put it somewhere on the outside with like a marker wand so that you can find the end of the rope and then pull it down and dig to get back into your ice cave because the mountain tends to take reclaim itself. (laughs) And if you go up there, and you can't find your entrance to the ice cave, and I've heard no people do this, you could be fucked. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm now, I've just climbed all day to find the ice cave, to God. find my tent, something stronger than a tent, and I can't find it. Oh, 
So mark all the my entrance. stuff in it. Mark, yeah, food, everything. Yeah. Wow. Sleeping bags. Mark the entrance to the thing. Wow. Smart. Yeah. Uh, I remember you guys had a, a close avalanche call on uh, Dalagiri. Um, um, just a bunch of snow, just like, like. Well, so what happened was, um, we're a pretty small team. By this time, one guy got sick and left. Mm-hmm. Um, who was a good friend of mine. I'm, that's why I'm not going to say his name. Um, yeah, yeah, he got sick. But there were five of us left, but there was only really Adrian and me as cl- and the leader yeah. that were now climbers. But we had established this ice cave at about 21,000, 22,000 feet. And um, the next time we went back up, um, we all went back up. No, no, there'll be four climbers. There was John, the leader, and then, and yeah, four climbers. And then there was the doctor who helped, but, you know, was not that strong. And so we all went back up. And they all helped to relieve age, help Adrian and myself. So they were carrying food for us. Um, I don't know. We hadn't left sleep. We didn't have, like, two sleeping bags everywhere. So, you know, there were no sleeping bags and stuff. So we had down suits and sleeping bags. Um, we were carrying them. So our friends were helping us with logistics to come back up to this ice cave, right? And then they left my brother and myself, and then they went back down. Now we went, and then the next day, there was some old fixed line that we had already put up there going up to a tent platform. Um, That night, we had a tent, um, which is a new hoop tent. Nowadays, there's all kinds of these tents. This was relatively new but it was a super strong tent. And it got so windy that night, we left our radio, we kept doing radio checks all night. All night. Because we thought we were going to get blown off the ridge. Mm. I mean, it was a tent platform where there's a big drop down there and then a huge drop down both sides. And we're not an ice cave, you know. In a way, we should, I wonder if we should have dropped back to an ice cave, but probably not, because we didn't know till it was dark when it really started howling. We were so exhausted. I think we took a rest day. Mm. I can't remember. I think either we took a rest day or we had a half day. I can't remember. I'd have to read the book. <laughs> but the next day we led. I remember leading now because there's no, we haven't prepared the route any further. And I was leading and it came up the steep edge of the ridge and it started to ease at about, I think it was 24, 24, 5, 24, 6, maybe 20, 24 something anyway. And we had a tent with us and we put this tent up and it was a good, pretty decent, strong tent. Maybe then we had a rest day there. I think that's where we had a rest day because it was a good acclimatization day and to hydrate. You know, so I think maybe we'd never had a rest day the next day. We kind of didn't sleep. So maybe we slept in the morning. We never slept during the wind at night. Because we sat up waiting to cut the tent loose if it fucking ripped, right? We weren't going out with it. Um, I think we maybe slept in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we said, yeah, we'll go up. We'll just go up this other 1,500 feet or whatever um, and put in the next camp. And then we were so exhausted there from the lack of sleep from the night before, I think. And, you know... We spent a day hydrating there, and then we went from most, most you know, these pyramid-level expeditions, big expeditions, put in another high camp above that. 
I, I'm I'm not getting all the height super correct probably. Yeah, it's all good. But um, so I don't know what the height of their camp would have been. Maybe we were down at twenty three then. But maybe that was it. I was ours was one camp lower, and we had the one rest day there, hydrated, set up early next morning, went to the summit. Everyone else was down in base camp with binoculars. No one else was on the mountain with us. Um, no oxygen, no support low down, whatever, no fixed lines. Climbed the last day in eight hours to the summit. And, and the avalanche thing coming down, there's like a direct, we went up and followed the ridge along. And you could come straight down this face. And it, I got 150 foot down it. And the whole thing was like a drum, boom, boom. I mean, sounded like it could cut off, wind slap like that. So I fucking had to slug back up. And I tell you, 26,000 feet, 150 foot back up, mm-hmm. which I did pretty quickly. And then, and then we started <coughs> coming down the ridge. And actually an afternoon storm hit us because there was snow coming in through my goggles and it was plowed everywhere. And there was one place you had to be pretty tricky because if you fell, you were both down the same side and no anchors. Mm-hmm. And once you got past this little section, whoever was going along this ridge, a ridge and down a bit, losing height as well, could belay over the other side of the ridge. Mm-hmm. So if something happened, you know, it was a counterbalance because the rope would cut through the ice on the ridge mm-hmm. and you'd hold up, right? You know, and there was nothing, it wasn't vertical. You weren't dropping and breaking ropes or so, and we got back down to the camp that night. I think we got back by about four or six o'clock at night. Um, next day, we came all the way back down to the advanced base camp, and I think we just cleared the mountain then. Yeah, I think uh, on on that particular one, the two other points I want to cover are the, the yak meat. No. <laughs> I remember oh. the, the, the Sherpa... Uh, suggested that you buy uh, a yak. Well, it was for slaughter. A, it was a water water buffalo, buffalo yeah. for slaughter, and it ended up making everybody sick. Right? Everybody got sick. This was on the walking. Yeah, the Sherpas wanted me, so he said, "Okay, we'll buy this water buffalo for you." Well, when they went to kill this water buffalo, I wasn't vegetarian then. Uh-huh. You were after. I think after this, it bloody <laughs> certainly helped. <laughs> because what they did, somebody tied this water buffalo up by the head to a tree. And then a guy came along with what looked like a sledgehammer on one side and a pickaxe on the other. Oh God. And bloody slammed. Oh, one guy was feeding the water buffalo grass. <laughs> Right. Oh. While the other guy slammed this water buffalo between the eyes oh. with this sledgehammer. Oh my God. The water buffalo went, fuck that, snapped his head back, broke the rope, right? Because it was probably some poor shitty rope, right? And started going off down the rice paddies in this big V shaped valley with terraces. They were all rice paddies. Like a gazelle. It was leaping 10-foot fucking rice paddies going down towards the river, just leaping them and getting away. Now, I don't know, you know, how much damage they'd done to this 
become a beastie, you know, if it just bled out. Or, but I know that about two hours later, they're all coming up. The porters are coming back up with these doko bas- bamboo baskets that obviously can't hold water. So there's blood dripping out the bottom of these bloody baskets. And there was this Tibetan, we called it the Gang of Five, I think it were. Tibetans were really good porters, but they were, you know, they all traveled together and they had the head and they had negotiated for the head somehow. They've got to boil the crap out of this head. They get every globule of fat and whatever out of it. Um, the meat, chunk of the meat was kept, you know, for us. So, you know, probably for the next couple of days, we probably had buffalo momos, little dumplings, and buffalo something or buffalo whatever, as they were carving up this stuff, right? We got to, so on Dalagiri, there was a low base camp, and they were had to carry for two days up this glacier, basically without the normal porters. We just kept, retained a few, but we were portering loads along. So it went from 12,500 up to 16,500 in two days. So we had a halfway storage camp, 12,500 to 14,500, 14,500 to 16,500, right? Along this glacier. And um, they're carrying this meat up. And of course, what they do, you know, they need to refrigerate it, right? So they dig a big hole in the in the glacier and put the bloody meat in there. You know, to keep it okay. Well, I mean, it keeps it okay for some... I don't think they fucking put ice over the top of it, right? You know, it wasn't re- totally refrigerated, I can assure you. And so we get to base camp, and now they, they're not, they haven't dug a big hole in the ice. What they do under the kitchen tent, they've dug a little bit of ice, and the rest of the carcass is fucking buried under here, open to the air. Oh, my God. It's probably got fucking maggots on it and everything. But they keep, what well, you know, they're cooking, so they'll cook Sherpa stew. Well, traditionally, Sherpa stew probably does have meat in it. They like meat in it, that's for sure. And so there'll be little bits of, by now, this thing's probably almost dried, you know, itself out. Oh. But they're putting it into the Sherpa stew and cooking it up and feeding it us. And for them, they seem like they like it, man. I think we had an, I had Jardia again. I mean, <laughs> and he said, how do you know you had Jardia? I've had Jardia enough time to know what the poop looks. <laughs> and the Belch poop yeah. and the farts, it's sulfur, 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 one hour after eating. Trust me. I can look at it. Guiding after that, I could look at a Jardia turd. <laughs> Jardia. Not amoeba. No, no, this is not, you don't have amoebic dysentery, you don't even have any other form of bacterial. Yeah. That's a Jardia turd right there. <laughs> Globules of fat in it, un- uh, undissolved from the large intestine. Yikes. That's how you tell. Yikes. Nah, anyway. So, yeah, I mean, just before, before we summited Dalagiri, I'd been on the, the antibiotic for Jardia for like five days during the rest at base camp, I was still staggering up the first day to get to the advanced base camp, getting better by the day. The next day we went up to the ice cave 
By then, I was feeling okay. Actually. Far away from the water buffalo. We're far away from <laughs> fucking water buffalo. <laughs> Buff. You call it... Buff? Buff Momo. Oh, boy. Or buff steaks. They'll try and sell it as yak steaks, but it's not. <laughs> And and the last, the, the, yeah. God, it sounds horrible. The the last part to this story that really caught me was that, so you're you've summited. It's this big, uh, you know, big success, and you guys decide to take a shortcut to oh. a town that's nearby. You send all the porters, all your gear, all your food, back down the valley away from you guys, and you go through this alpine terrain to try to find a pass to yeah. get down to the next place and. The fog rolls in and you guys get lost and you have no food and you're basically about to die just well, in this valley. Die, but just That's what it said in the book. You were like, to death if you guys didn't find the pass. Well, yeah, that could have been a problem. If you guys didn't find the correct pass, you would have died there. Just Well, we actually starving. found the wrong pass. Okay. We didn't find the correct pass. So what it was, this thing called from Delegated Base Camp, just north of there, this thing called the Hidden Valley. And you have to cross this 17,500-foot pass, which is, you know, we're all fully acclimatized, into the Hidden Valley, Frenchman's Pass, over into the Hidden Valley, go down this Hidden Valley for a few hours, and then on the right, there's another pass of about 16,500 feet that crosses over and brings you all the way down into the Gavigandaki Valley, where to jump the village of town of Johnson, where all our porters are going to, no, actually, our porters aren't going to be there, but mm-hmm. we could fly out fly. from. Yeah. Our porters and the Sherpa staff are all going out the other way, bringing all the gear, all back the other two weeks of walking. And by now, there's not that much gear left. You know, I mean, there's very little food, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> I mean, and our gear, and we, I mean, most of our gear we ship it with, they're taking with them, you know, but we have some of our gear, little bits of our gear. Like a sleeping bag, for example, and we have that. Um, so they've gone, we've left, but it's only like, you know, it's like three days after the summit for Agent and I. We still haven't replenished. I mean, we've just, you know, shredded ourselves. And now we've got this hike out. Well, they told us, oh, it's an easy hike. Well, you know what? At post monsoon, it is an easy hike because I've been there in the post monsoon season. Because there's no snow in the Hidden Valley. You cross this pass, and we are now in this Hidden Valley, knee-deep in snow slush, breaking trail through this shit, right? And there's no trail, because it's just a white expanse, and it's slush. It's not even frozen. I don't, you know, maybe we should have waited till night, but I don't know if it froze at night. But it was, anyway, we walked down this valley, we should have, and it's fogged in because you know so much moisture in the air. There's this big cloud of humidity around, and we didn't know, you know, maps were shit. We didn't have GPS and all that stuff. We should have actually cut right earlier to cross the real, the easy pass, mm-hmm. right? But we missed it. We went on a bit further, and there is, and it's only a mile further down. We missed it. We're going over the wrong pass. Now, this pass does work, but we're flogging up over this pass. <laughs> the best story I have is the doctor who's been bringing all his medical hardware out, which is worth a small fortune to him, I would imagine, like stethoscopes and shit like this, right? He's bringing this stuff 
over the past. We're getting on this pass, and he's he's looking down in his pack, and he's going, "Well, that can go, and that can fucking go," and he's throwing the shit out, lightening his pack because since we've got to get over this damn pass, yeah. we bivouac before we cross the pass. Next morning, it's a little clearer. We can't see where we should have gone, but we cross this pass. But now, instead of a trail running down this pass, an easy hike that you could ride a horse down, right? It's kind of a narrow snow gully. We have the liaison office, Nepali liaison office with us, who's not a climber. And I remember Adrian gave him an umbrella, a British umbrella, and said, if you fall, dig that in. <laughs> right? Don't fall. And, and this is like, you know, a 30 degree, 35 degree bloody soft snow slope going down. But at the bottom of this thing, there's like a 300 foot cliff, Jeez. right? So if you slipped, you would you would die. Yeah. If you went over the cliff, you'd die. You'd ride. I mean, maybe you could stop with an ice axe and all that shit. I don't think we had even, we never took ice axes with us. We thought it was hiking. That was all going out with the porters. But we had packs. So we're coming down this thing. I don't even think, I think Adrian might have had plastic boots. I don't think I even had plastic mountaineering boots. Because they'd got blisters, I know. Um, I, I, I can't remember. But I know at the bottom, you could traverse outright and traverse down, semi-scrambling, one hand on the scruff neck of the liaison officer so he didn't die on you and move down this kind of third-class terrain. And then we were down in the meadows. And we got down in the meadows and it was like, man. I remember my brother took his double boots off. and Well, he had inner boots, right? Double boots. And he walked with um, his inner boots because he had blisters on his ear from his fucking boots and wet through. He walked in his inner boots down all the way down to the valley. And I think we found a couple of donkeys or something at the bottom. We were so knackered that we could barely walk the one hour up to the village where we were going to spend the night. Yeah, we, were, we were just staggering. But the best thing happens that night. This is, I don't know if this should be uh, edited or not. It I mean, was in the book. It was in the book. It, yeah. was, it was in the book. Yes, yeah. it was in the book. So I can't say. So we're in this tea house. Now, you've got to remember, we are now, our hematocrit is so high, we can burn off alcohol like nothing, right? You know, that's the one good thing about coming back down. You can drink and that feel no effect. You just burn it off, right? So we're in this tea house. We've been eating omelets and food. Now we've got food in our bellies and we're drinking beers. And the doctor had said, um, well... I did save the ketamine, <laughs> the shrimp of ketamine, which is a painkiller for children who break their legs, apparently. That's what he told us. He said, but it can have other side effects. He said, if you would like to line up, we all went, we, he was like mama, mama bird. We were like parrots. <laughs> <laughs> we're all mouths open. <laughs> and he's giving us a little squirt of ketamine, oral ketamine, little squirt. And he comes to Adrian, he comes, oops, I think I've given you a bit much there, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> and so we all go back inside and we're drinking beers. There's this, I don't know, there's a woman and a child, maybe it was a family, 
from Canada. And it's like the first Canadian 8,000 meter peak, Dalagiri, the sixth highest. They're so proud of their boys sat around who start to get more and more drunk and the ketamine starts to fucking kick in where we're fucking talking garbled <laughs> talk. The doctor, the doctor is bringing, is walking Adrian up and down the fucking runway, the airway, trying to mitigate the effects of the ketamine. Adrian's slow regurgitation, because apparently that's one of the side effects if you get too much, which is not a voluntary puke, it just regurgitates. It probably numbs part of your, your <laughs> digestive tract or something. And, you know... It's like, bring on the ketamine, bring on the dope. I think we probably had smoke yeah, as we well. Had weed, yeah. We had weed as well. So we had yeah. beer, ketamine, and weed. <laughs> we were no longer Canadian heroes. Yeah, it said in the book that the, whatever audience you had started with smiles, turned to frowns, and then ended up just leaving the situation altogether. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. Hey, we just come back, man. I mean, we were just, you know. It was like just surviving Vietnam or something. Yeah. <laughs> back, back from yeah. the dead, you Absolutely. know. Make hay while the sun shines. Yeah. And and you know what? None of none of us had hangovers in the morning, man. I tell you, <laughs> that fucking hematocrit, bang, nails alcohol. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. that the secret process the alcohol so fast and you feel good Whoa. still. All right, Al. Um, time wise, we're pushing it. I'm okay with. It being a little bit longer than the last time because I don't think we can make episode three. No. But um, anything else? I mean, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. So there are some final comments in terms of what you're doing now and the future that I'd like to cover. But um, there's Annapurna 4 and K2 that I think that we could talk about. I would like okay, to I'll kind keep of... It brief. I'd, yeah, yeah. If we're going to do... If we're going to do both, I'd like to keep Annapurna super brief. Right. Um, because K2, we do have that, that section in the book I'd like you to read. And I feel yeah. like there was a lot of politics and stuff that went into that story that I right. felt like was interesting. Annapurna. Um, I think oh, Annapurna, I've always mentioned quite a bit because I mentioned Himalayan winter climbing. Yeah, exactly. Digging snow caves. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all you know, it's what, it's what we learned from Everest in winter. Mm -hmm. You know, we picked a peak of 25,700 instead of 29,000. We picked a route we could dig ice caves in, just the tents, you know. But but we still did it very quickly. I mean, I think we climbed the whole thing from base camp to top, acclimatizing everything in 18 days. Mm -hmm. It's pretty quick. Yeah, the only thing about Enterprise 4 that, that really stood out to me was the wind at the top and how the wind, yeah. you guys couldn't even communicate to each other and no. how the wind was so strong that you couldn't even breathe it was like taking the breath away from you and you guys still chose to push for the summit which was which was interesting to me my the only question for yeah. that objective i guess was like what was the thought process behind choosing to to move forward um on that objective at the top rather than backing off so most, the condition seemed so intense so the thing is the weather was stable even if because the winds are normal but it wasn't going to snow and you know visibility was clear the lower part of the mountain from the last camp was steep to steep neve to start with, and then it eased back. I mean, it was only probably 35 degrees 
like we were hiking up this slope. And then you arrived at the final 600 feet, which was a little pyramid. And that was where we were hiding in the wind. Roger caught up to us and stuff. And, and uh, actually, Roger kicked steps up that final bit. Um, I think we were hunted by the wind, but we knew by turning around and walking downhill how easy it was without that experience. Mm. So we never felt trapped. We didn't have to go over the summit to get down. Mm-hmm. We could come down the same way. We knew the way. Visibility was good. And we had enough hours of daylight. So I don't think we felt that we were life-threatened. That the, the wind was the only life-threatening thing, and which we'd never experienced that. I mean, on every single winter we had, but, you know, mainly... We'd, we'd kind of been on fixed ropes or we'd been in an ice cave. We hadn't climbed when it was like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas we climbed when it was like that. Did Annapurna still have the reputation that it has today, where now I think it's a third of the climbers trying to make an ascent of that? Well, first of all, people should know, not to be misstood here, there's Annapurna 1, which was the first 8,000-meter peak to be climbed, 26,000, right, by the French from Chamonix. Herzog, mm-hmm. Lachnel. That is a harder peak than the oh, peak we climbed. Peak. Okay, we climbed Annapurna 4. There's a number of them, of peaks. And uh, they're along this ridge line, and they probably start Annapurna 1's at one end, and then it kind of goes along, and Annapurna 4's at the far end. I think, I think there's Annapurna 2, Annapurna 4, sorry, Annapurna 1, Annapurna 2, Annapurna 4, and then Annapurna 3 is somewhere lower down, lower, separate mountain or something, right? So it is not Annapurna 1. I'm not saying we... But people, please do not think that we have climbed Annapurna 1 in winter in this style. It was Annapurna gotcha. 4. But, you know, Annapurna 1 is just over 26. We climbed a peak that was just under 26. And did not have the steep terrain or distance that Annapurna 1 had. Gotcha. Yeah. We had ice caves, no tents. Tents at base camp. Yeah. But it, but it was still, you know, it, um, it was one of the highest climbing winter. After the Poles climbed Everest, it was the second yeah, highest climb. Yeah, it's a climb. monumental task. You know, some people tried to say that it was the highest climb. Was that, was but, that Annapurna 4 winter ascent, the first ascent? Yeah, in winter. In winter. In so winter, you guys, yes. you took the first winter ascent. Yes, of yes, Port. yeah. Wow. And it might have been the second highest ever climbed in winter at that time, wow. in 1981. Wow, wow. There were... yeah, sometimes I'm in shock at who I'm sitting next to. It's like, uh, it's just a little bit surreal sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a living legend here. It's pretty amazing. Pretty awesome. So let's get on to K2. Okay, yeah, so K2... Let's skip, um, you know, we've talked about the uh, logistics of getting there. It's super far away, two-week approach. you got a bunch of borders. You're at the base. Um, basically, the, the details of this is you're going for, um, remind me of the, the route. The northwest, northwest Ridge. You're going for the Northwest Ridge, and then the other route is the... The, Abru- the normal Abruzzi. route is the Abruzzi Spur. Abruzzi Spur. Now, the Abruzzi Spur, I say normal route, just just because it's the most common route done and guided now, mm-hmm. but it's still very steep, and but it's got loads of fixed lines on it. Mm-hmm. It's a relatively safe route 
up until the last day or so, mm-hmm. right? Um, to say that the team who were there with, again, Alan Rouse was the leader. Mm-hmm. He raised the money through Fuller's Brewery, K2 <laughs> Lager, and all that. And um, the team was very similar to Everest in Winter. Slightly different, but there are some, a lot of people were the same. Um, Rousey, Adrian, myself, Brian Hall. Um, yeah, I mean, they, yeah, I mean, there's the main, most of the guys, John Porter, um, were the same. Um, some people left early again. Now, this peak, this thing was a technical route, but it was round the other side of the damn mountain. Yeah, so is this route had been done before? Uh, no. No, this is a first this is ascent, a first ascent. winter. No, 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 this was winter. summer. No, summer. this was okay. spring. Spring. Okay. Yeah. And this is a first, first ascent. First attempt. ascent, yes. Gotcha. But, it's then, but it's round the other side of the damn mountain. So you've got to almost ski for two days up the glacier to get to the other ridge. So there's a lot of logistics. And again, no local porters, no oxygen high up or anything. So... So and also the weather is different in Pakistan. It's more good weather spell, bad weather spell. In Nepal, it's more the good weather spells are longer with afternoon storms that clear by next morning. That's kind of be clear, especially in spring in Nepal. So we were there, and you know, we, so the teams were two teams of four. Al Rouse was in. So they called it the A team and the B team. Right, and and that in a way was silly, but it kind of had some political or logistical connection to it. So the A team was Alan Rouse, the leader, Adrian, um, John Porter. Who else was the fourth one? Can't remember right now. Anyway, the B team was myself. John Barry, well, maybe Brian Hall was in, was in the A-team, I can't remember. And then uh, then another uh, we had the doctor, another guy. In, in a sense, we were a weaker team, mm-hmm. I think. That would have been fair to say that. Um, one thing apparently that's come out very recently, Brian Hall has just written his, this book, which is called High Risk. And he, what he's done is taken all the characters that is known who died in the mountains and described their lives and stuff. And he saw Alan Rouse died on K2, you know, this year, you know, because he stayed on, as it were, to go up the Abruzzi. Um, He said, and that some of this stuff was opinion, and we didn't know why Rouse had done this. Rouse said he split Adrian and I up because we could then be a stronger two teams. You could always have a strong person leading and fixing rope, a strong person leading and fixing rope. And and actually, I think that was a, a good, legitimate reason. I honestly do think that. And it, it seemed like in the book, uh, there was definitely a lot of controversy between choosing these teams and how to split up the, the strengths. It seemed like on your, your ascent of the Western Ridge of, of Everest in the first place, you guys just climbed with whomever you wanted to climb with. It was a rotational kind of experience where like whoever was feeling well, up for it well, that who day. Wasn't you, sick? You didn't <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and it, it, 
who didn't get a job. Yeah. I mean, that's really well. To me, yeah. it seems like that's the best way to go is instead of locking yourself into a specific team, just each day play to your strengths. Like, why do you feel like that that particular way of moving forward is definitely a smarter well, I, way? Or? I thought Rouse's way early on on the expedition was good and valid because people are stronger. The strong and the weak and the sick or whatever haven't been weaned out yet, mm. but they will be higher up. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened, actually, is because you could, you know, four people push hard, building a camp, fixing ropes, storing, and then they're tired. So they come back down for a rest. The next team piggyback up to their high point and then push again with the maximum strength. And they're working within weather spells. Because it's not like you've got perfect weather all the time. Yeah. Now, what actually happened was that Adrian and I ended up at 22,500 feet on the west northwest ridge together for the first time on the expedition. Mm-hmm. But everyone else in good weather was back in base camp. Sick. No. No. Tired. Tired. Not because everybody thought they had a chance at the summit, so they're all like resting, saving themselves or whatever. Right? I don't know. But Aid and I were saying, look, we can now, we can push the rope up and stuff from here, but we do need people to, you know, there's only a limited amount of food we have there. We need people to bring up, come up and bring supplies up. What happened was, I think, is that people down there were also tired, but they were like, well, now... We're just going to support, support the twins and the twins are going to run for the summit. And Alan Rouse didn't want that. Mm-hmm. He knew there was always a chance of that, mm-hmm. but he wanted to be in that team with us. Because mm-hmm. he was going for the first British ascent up to yes. too, right? And for him, it was super important career-wise and stuff yeah, like exactly. this. You know, I mean, and there was, a, there was a female who was going up the Abruzzi route at the same time who was also British. Yes. And she was trying to be the first British Julie to, be, to be up up the top of Cape And Julie Tullis was nowhere near as exactly. climbing. You know, not at all. You know, I mean, I, just not a climb. I don't barely call it a climber, really. Although she did summit, you know. Um, didn't make it back But down. didn't make it back down and stuff. She was obviously strong enough. But so Adrian and I, at 22,500, went, this is fucked. How, if, if in good weather... Can't have people. We can, people can't make it up to us to help support us. What we're we doing? Mm-hmm. What, why are we here? Mm-hmm. And everybody and his dog was bloody climbing the Abruzzi Spur. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody, easily, people who were way weaker than us mm-hmm. were climbing it. So Aidan and I went, look, you know, this we're not, we're not, we can't climb this by ourselves because we, we need some support. We'll go back down and we just. We came back into the camp. People were kind of a bit surprised because they knew the, that expedition, that route was over. You know, if the twins have come down, well, who else is going to fucking fix the ropes, right? You know, we said what we're suggesting is we'll pirate the Abruzzi Spur. We'll just fucking wait to the next weather spell, have a rest, and then we'll just all go alpine style for the Abruzzi. There's fixed line all the way up to 24-6, right? And we don't need much. We're totally acclimatized and fit. Mm-hmm. So we all actually crept around the base camp. Instead of going up the normal trail towards, you know, Camp 1 or whatever, we all crept around one afternoon 
And John Barry, who was an ex Marine commando captain, went using the dead ground, you know. So we're fucking doing this thing. And we get that day, in a few hours, we're up at Camp One at 20,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Next day, we all leave 20,000 feet. There's some Austrians, I can't remember, there's two of them or four of them in front of us. And they'd camped, I don't know, 2,000 foot higher or something like that, right? And they were going for the 24,000 foot camp that day. <clears throat> Within an hour, we'd gone to their camp. Mm-hmm. Adrian and I, now climbing together, had gone up the fixed ropes. We now were at that next camp. They're leaving and we're catching them up as they're going up to their next camp. And Adrian's in front of me and we've been chatting the whole way up so that we're not getting too tired. We just chat, chat. You're not panting too hard. And Ed's head keeps hitting this guy's ass, right, on the on the ropes. And I say, hey, back off, for fuck's sake. You know, we don't have a permit, remember? Right, don't push them. Well, they, you know, and it, not, you can't pass everywhere there. So they get to the next, next place that we can pass, and they wave us through, and they say, you're going for summit today? That's how fast we were going. Wow. You know, from 20,000, they thought we were going from 20,000 to 28. Well, that's probably not realistic. It sounds like from what I read it, you were. We could have, maybe. I mean, well, but the fact that you turned we were, around. The fact, the fact but, is, but though. you were going. It seemed like well, you were we, going we for were, the summit. Well, we, we were going for the summit. We weren't going for the summit that day, though. Oh, okay. We were going to 26,000. And then camp. And then camp. Gotcha. And then summit the next day. That's what we were going to do. Okay. Um, we got up to 24, 6 or whatever, top of the ropes. There's a fucking storm coming in. You can see it in Scardu. It's like this wedge, black wedge marching in, right? Mm. That is not an afternoon storm coming. That's going to be around for, I don't know, three to five days. We, we climb, I mean, light and fast. We don't have the ability to stay well hydrated and fit at this elevation for three to five days. That's how you die. That's how eventually that expedition, you know, people, well, Rouse died. He stayed up there for seven days at 26,000 feet Yeah, so on the way down. You so know. you guys chose to leave. So we said, well, it was funny because on the way up, before the trip, before they um, decided to leave, Rouse, our Rouse, the leader, came to Aidan and myself and said, when we get higher up, Everything's going to change. We all know that. Can I come with you guys? Mm-hmm. We said, of course you can, Al. You know, we'll break trail. You just fucking stay in our trail. Mm-hmm. No problem, Al. So he knew that he was going to get the chance, mm-hmm. right? He knew we were the strongest team, as it were, but we were giving him a chance as a friend, and he was strong enough because mm-hmm. he did summit later, even if it died on the way down. He teamed he up just- with a, a lady. A Pol- After you guys left. Polish woman. Polish woman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing was, is that, okay, so on this team, we suddenly the weather shit. We're at 24 6. Well, we have a choice. We can stay on the mountain. Everybody's going to be coming down tomorrow, kicking rocks on you, falling down and hitting you. Ed and I just went, base camp now. It's over. Three hours later, we dropped. From 24,000 down to 16 and a half in three hours. 7,000 feet in three hours? Yeah. Just repelling? Well, not repelling, really. 
just running down with your hands on the rope sometimes. We've repelled some of it, steep bits, but otherwise you clip a beaner on, right? You just put a, your hand on the rope and just run down the slope. Really, it's not unrealistic to do half to do a thousand foot in half an hour. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Not you weren't carrying anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're carrying our sleeping bag, but we dumped the food we had and fuel. Yeah, because we didn't know if we're coming back up or not. And so you guys get to base camp and and you guys start hiking out. Well, it's because over. because then you got to understand that there's liaison officers, yeah, like which are Pakistani military officers. Ish assigned to each expedition, mm-hmm. and they all have radio contact back into Islamabad and on the mountain. Everybody knew we were pirating, and this Julie Tullis woman, fucking, you know, of course, is now about to report us. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, basically, a big team effort's gone. I mean, you know, it's like, guys, we've got to get out of it, we're going to have to leave, you know. So, I leave with one, then Aid comes later with another guy, and, and Rousey stays on. And there's this group of people that weren't the strongest climbers just hanging on in base camp. Rouse had nowhere to go without the summit. He had nowhere to bloody go back to Sheffield. What was he going to do? His ex girlfriend that had dumped him was pregnant, not with his kid. No, sorry, he had left him. His girlfriend, new girlfriend, was pregnant with his child. Mm. It was just like, uh, what am I doing? Space to think. And he and a bunch of them went back up. And, you know, Rousey showed that he was strong enough, but he took too long. They, they weren't moving fast. Speed at altitude is also safety when there's bad weather around. If bad weather is hunting you, get out of there. Yeah. I think this is... Uh... This is a good place for the, the little memoir and, mm. and, a, and a snippet from from the book that we're all kind of circling around here. The the Burgess Book of Lies that was uh, written by Alan himself and, and Adrian, his twin brother. And basically, this is just um, the a, a section written by Adrian. Um, yeah, just kind of um, exactly yeah, start yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. So this is so uh, this is Adrian writing about all the. So what happened was. Rousey went back up with a number of people. They summited, came back down to 8,000 meter camp, and then the weather hit them. Mm-hmm. And then it was, they stayed, it was like a seven day storm. Only two people survived. This is, so this is Adrian describing what he feels it would have been like in that experience. I could almost see how it happened. I'd been in storms. Tired, listless, the body slowly dying. On the 10th of August, five exhausted climbers put on their icy boots, pulled on their downfill jackets, and staggered out into the howling gale. How many days had they been trapped there? They'd forgotten exactly. Four days? Or was it seven? At 26,000 feet, oxygen starved brains had become confused. Each person had withdrawn into himself, trying to conserve the last ounces of energy and heat. They were wild animals acting out of self-preservation. Their mouths were cracked raw from attempting to eat snow. A snowball stuffed hopefully to the mouth simply remained a snowball. 
The vital heat was almost gone. Speech was impossible. How useless were even eloquent words, as then, as they then, could only be thought, and even that process was quickly slipping away. Julie had died days before. She was the first. Her nylon encased body was already half buried by the blizzard. Rouse didn't want to move from his sleeping bag. I could almost see his stubbly chin sticking out from his balaclava as he rambled on about melting some snow in a plastic bottle. Just another few drops and be ready to descend. The bottle was wedged between his thighs, but the heat was now only in his inner core. Nothing melted. He wasn't even able to rise to a sitting position. Dienberger, the Austrian guy, glanced over at him, trying to think. Should they take him? But how? He and his bottle must stay together. His sunken eyes stared at the flapping green fabric. Someone zipped the door shut. The snow rose to their waists. Tortured sinews tugged at sunken boots. It was impossible to move. The snow rushed up to smash into a ragged beard, a tongue licked, hopefully, at the frozen crystals. There was blood on the snow. Five minutes passed before the body wriggled again, another try, another collapse. The Austrians, Alfred and Hans, lay side by side. Then, unexpectedly, the heat began to rise and their eyes closed. A strange comfort seeped into them. At that same moment, the life force seeped out. Mrufka, Willie and Kurt, barely noticing their passing, their clocks too had begun to slow down. Down they struggled through the wind-blown powder snow, eyes strained through iced-up glasses. Which way to go, left or right? Then a rope stretched down out of the mist. They knew this lifeline would take them 9,000 feet lower to their friends. Friends who had given up, ever seen them again. Only a tiny core of energy controlled each of them. Sometimes they imagined they had clipped onto a rope, only to turn and to discover the opposite. The various levels of reality had begun to separate. The composite called self was coming apart. Sometimes, as they descended, they had the feeling that it was happened to someone else, that they were looking down on their own bodies from some safer place. They had become observers. Mruska was the most tired, but she dearly wished to escape the maelstrom. She pressed on down, using her only friction device, a small metal plate with two holes in it. The rope passed through it to create a break that controlled her downward slide. The ropes were so frozen like steel hoses that they constantly stuck. Sometimes she couldn't move at all until she jerked at the rope. Her body began to shake as she sobbed in frustration. It was all happening to someone else. The rope was really jammed, locked solid. It prevented any further descent. She slowly sank into her harness and a comfortable warmth flooded her body. She never moved again. Willie staggered half dead into base camp. Unable to speak, he pointed the mountain 
to indicate that Kurt was still up there and needed help. Fortunately, a rescue party managed to get to him in time to save his life. Only two out of seven survived. Wow. Yeah. Just, um... Well, it's just kind of Adrian knowing how easy it is, you know, mm-hmm. being close to that edge, slipping, and then knowing what it feels like, not knowing exactly what it feels like to slip. But you know when people dive hypothermia often they get a flush of heat at the end mm-hmm. and you'll find them climbing out of the sleeping bags or undressing. undressing yeah wow yeah i just thought it was just so well written and so visual and just really paints a picture at that the the peril that these these people were in so i just really wanted to to share that with all of you so thanks for reading that out yeah i'd, I'd forgotten about Good writing. I also think it just paints a picture of something so severe where they're talking about kind of just delaying, you know, oh, just a few more drops. Oh, just this. I'll get out of my sleeping bag because just everything at that that state seems so difficult and so hard and so perilous, right? Just a struggle. The guys, the two guys who survived, Kurt and Willie, were chunky guys Mm. with extra fat on them. You know, they... Rousey was a skinny guy, you know, rock climber. Um, they, their metabolisms were slow. They were good climbers, you know. Um, they, and that, I'm sure that extra body fat really helped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so situational. Simple things. Yeah. All right. Uh, to turn this kind of shifting gears from, from back then until now. Until now. Because it's mm. been what almost forty oh. years. Wow! I mean, you know, last time in the Himalaya was actually two thousand and three. Okay. Yeah, well, and, and to say that you know, after I ended up guiding treks and twenty thousand foot peaks and stuff, never really, I never really wanted to guide on Everest. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sent the, that uh, eighty six one was a one off because it wasn't being done then. So it was it was only one team on the mountain, Ben Mesner on, on Lotse. You know, so it was a different game. I, there's no way I'd go and guide an Everest right now. And I don't know, if you climb Everest right now, and I'm saying this to everyone who's listening, it's an adventure, tourism adventure now. You can describe it how the hell you want, but, you know, it's not mountaineering anymore. You know, I mean... Even when I was guiding 20,000-foot trekking peaks, that was adventure travel taken to the end. They weren't mountaineers. Might have been one or two that thought they were, but they were basically tourists getting taken up a snow peak for the last day after someone brought them there, acclimatized them, kept them gut healthy, which I'd learned a lot about. Um, And it was tourism. Where's high altitude mountaineering now? Um, I haven't really been following it. Mm. But my guess is um, Steve House would know. Yeah. Got to get him on the show. Steve House would be the guy to tell you, because he's probably not doing it now, but he would know where it was going when he left it. 
when I left it, people like Steve House were coming forwards. Mm-hmm. That was that, and that was the future. And and so it, back then you were you were achieving first ascents in the in the winter, and there's been so much time between then and now. What, to your knowledge, what do first ascents look like now? Are are there are there any peaks that have yet to be had a first ascent, or are we now only focusing on more and more dangerous and more and more technical ascents of these? There, 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 there will be peaks in Pakistan, particularly um, numbered. You know, it's like I think there's like a K thirty or thirty five, K seven, K seven. He did a solo. I think it was K seven. He did a solo ascent of that, uh, self belaying it. That was. But, but this is just. Don't forget, these are just numbers on a on a map. Mm-hmm. Is how they made the maps. So there will be peaks out there. Still, there won't be high peaks. I don't think. I mean, high. They might. They might be. I'm sure there's some 20, 21, 22,000 footers out there. They're probably not going to be that technical. Otherwise, I think they'd have been done. Um, so you're, know, say, you're saying the mountains that are left to be claimed are less technical than the ones that have been claimed. It's not a matter of the difficulty. It's just the fact that the difficulty of these mountains were so alluring that they've been climbed, and now it's all these other sub-peaks that really don't I, have you know, much I special. Think, you know what? I think the price and costs have been set up this to some degree. Because if you want to go and climb a 22,000-foot technical peak that's been climbed, but you're doing a new route on it, but it's in India, and it's only two days from a roadhead or four days from a roadhead. You can do that without oxygen. You don't need massive support. You can buy all your food over there. Um, and, you know, there's the technical gear now. And the, the height of it means that, you know, if you get in like an ice cool wall, you might get actual water ice in it. You might get some really steep technical ice in some places, particularly at certain times of year. So I would that would be where I think that Himalayan climbing has gone. It's gone in two directions. It's gone technical and a thing and still authentic and affordable to some degree. And then it's gone guiding on Everest, guiding on K2, guiding on Manistow. And they just you know, these guardian companies, don't, I mean, hey, I ran one, not the same kind of company, but it was trekking. Um, you've got to find another project for the same client. You've only got so many clients. So, you know, they've climbed Everest. That's the big one, right? That's the one they paid 70 grand for. Uh, now, I've, what about K2, second hardest? Marketed, harder technically. You can do it, you know, fucking get them up. Get, I mean, there's a whole list there of marketing stuff but that is not where mountaineering is go that's where mountaineering is kind of adventure travel mountaineering is going with you know with titanium oxygen bottles nepali sherpas working in pakistan as well as pakistani court porters you know the nepali sherpas now are guides you know when we were when we were first climbing in nepal a Sherpa would not be able to fix fixed rope. 
because they couldn't put in a solid anchor. They didn't know how. They'd never been taught. Yeah. I mean, I've had Sherpas trying to put ice screws into snow, right? And it's like, mm, no, Pema, that won't work, <laughs> right? Yeah. We need, you know, and they understood how to put in snow anchors, you know, with the snow bar. They call them snow bars. In certain, but they were not technical. Now they are. Because they're the kids of the Sherpas yeah. I climbed with. And they're good guys, strong as well, you know. And, you know, and they when they climbed, they just climbed K2 in winter. Mm-hmm. Fucking that was an old Sherpa expedition. The hardest thing for them there, I bet, was raising the money. Mm-hmm. I bet anything. Just, you know, there's corruption in Nepal and all kinds. I mean, I, I bet, it, I don't know. My guess is they had a little bit of help from some Western guy helping them. They should have had. And if they didn't, then good for them. They've learned that as well, how to raise money, you know. Well, if anything, it seems like it's our job to return the favor for everything they've done for us. Well, exactly, exactly. You know, and and I have really close Sherpa friends and stuff, you know. So, I mean, I know, you know, how it works and how it goes and stuff. But... When it comes to mountaineering, hey, should be dangerous. <laughs> 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 Needs to be. And that's something we've talked about in this podcast a lot is, is risk and, and its, its role that it plays in the sport in, in every level. And I think that the consensus that we've drawn with people we've talked to and, and you and I, Max, in general, is just that without the risk, the sport would not be the same. And I think that that is just um, something that just rings true with, with all versions of climbing. For sure. I also think it's just having an educated climbing community. And I think the climbing community is getting a lot more educated and, and is becoming more aware of what Al is talking about, where he's making this distinction between adventure tourism, essentially, and actual what you could say mountaineering. I think the labels you put on it can be semantics in some sense, but ultimately, you know, there's uh, a, a astronomical difference between Reinhold Mesner soloing Everest with no O2 by himself standing on the summit alone, breaking the trail all day and having a fully fledged highway where you got six guys next to you if something goes wrong. This, the level of commitment, the skill, the knowledge, it's the same route. The people are walking the exact same route, but the experience is, uh, is unbe- un- unbelievably different. The risk is different. Ev- everything about it is actually just fundamentally different. And you don't really get that on the more classic routes in, in those 8,000 meter peaks nowadays because of how commercialized they are. Um, you know, I even saw, I think it was last year, someone posted a picture of Annapurna 1. And there was a lineup, like a queue on ever, like an Everest queue on Annapurna one. There was like a hundred person guided queue. And there was like long line rescues from helicopter. It's becoming almost commercialized there as well. And for, for people who know Annapurna one, that's crazy. Like that is absolutely insane to have that there. So I don't think there's any shortage of new routing to be done on the 8,000 meters. And I'm sure, uh, Climbing, climbing people for generations to come. New routing, new routing. Um, not many new routes. Not many, but I think there's teams. still there still are quite a few. I think uh, it's either Polish or Slovenian team just did. I think the Southeast Ridge of Annapurna oh, One a couple years ago. 
um, David Lama and a team okay. tried to do that as well. There's actually a really good, uh, a good video called Annapurna on Unclimbed, or it might be Annapurna Three actually, but it's this unbelievable. Yeah, Annapurna Three is yeah. There's some tech. unbelievable things still happening, but I definitely agree with that distinction. Well, that's what I think that it'll go more technically yeah, on lower elevation, mm-hmm. and and that's fine, you know, but in, because it's affordable. I mean, to go to you know, if you wanted to do. There used to be one route that was the big one that everybody wanted, and it was the west face of Makalu. Not the southwest pillar, the west face. Still hasn't been climbed. I don't know what generation. I mean, it could be climbed by a massive expedition, no doubt about it. I don't know what it would mean. You know, it's like uh, they're probably guiding the normal route, you know, fixing everything. You know, I mean, that's the deal. And, and they're going to climb, and if they are going to climb a new route, up, like on the West Face, they're going to use oxygen and fix rope. That's that's like using 1970s technology, you know, get with Mesner's stuff. If you ain't good enough, don't go on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, otherwise, otherwise, I'm going to have friends of mine, this, what's, I can't remember the name of it. It's like that 513 finger crack at Indian Creek. I'm going to go there on a busy Sunday afternoon and start aiding it with camps and aiders. And anybody who says anything, I'll say, fuck off. They could climb Everest with oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having my experience. <laughs> what, how do you think that would go yeah, down? I don't think it would go down too, too it well. Would be honest, yeah. Yeah. It would be honest. It would be. <laughs> Make a headline somewhere for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There'll be some guy trying to punch me at the bottom of it, fucking <laughs> telling me what I should and should not be doing, you know. Yeah. And I agree, I should not be aiding a 513 finger crack. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting for sure. So I'm wondering, um, Al, you seem very, very young in spirit. Um, you you also look young, you know. I was telling you when you came in, you looked young. But I'm wondering... Uh, were you really, are you like a really serious person when you're in the mountains? Are you very lightheaded? Do you find humor and morale of the group is something really important that you focus on? Is that, is that, do you have anything to say on that? Well, now I'm rock climbing, you know, um, you know, since I moved to Reen, well, since we got a little dog, I'm basically doing single pictures because I don't want to tie her up as coyote bait <laughs> at the bottom, right? So, you know, so, I mean, Indian Creek, single pictures, you know, sport climbing. Um, we're trying to move to Spain right now, which, of course, has got loads of, and, and they've got brilliant. The place we're looking at in Finistrat, there's a 13-pitch bolted sport climb within, like, you know, half an hour's walk. Wow. I mean, five minutes drive. And probably twenty minutes hike, and it's and it's probably only five seven five eight. Now you know I'm into that for sure. In, I'm into doing new stuff. I don't like to go to the same fucking crag that I've been to, and I did all these routes twenty years ago, and now I'm older, and now I struggle on those routes, and and or or, or I top rope them, somebody else, my wife leads them or whatever. Right, um, it's just not. I'm like some a bit of adventure in there, you know. 
I would never go to a sport climbing crag in Colorado. I'm just thinking of, you know, there's a number. And spend all summer climbing the same fucking route to get the red point. I could not do that. Mm -hmm. That is, that is, I have absolutely no interest. And so my life now is something like this. Well, this is what it will be in Spain when we eventually get it sorted and stuff. There's loads of rock climbing. I'll be way there with Erin, my much younger wife, who is going to become a good rope gun. She's already a good rope gun, you know. And on particularly on bolted stuff, but, you know, some trad as well. And I'll get up in the morning and I'll take, Little rush to the dog, a run on the beach. Yeah, 20 minutes. I'll come back. Well, I'll go with Erin as well. We'll come back and have a coffee and croissant on the cafe on the beach. And then we'll decide if we're climbing for the day. If it's a rest day, I'll go and do an hour of yoga someplace. I'll have found a place by myself or with Erin. I'll just go and practice yoga for an hour. And then if it's a climbing day, we'll probably do the run, get out there, and then drive for half an hour, walk to the crag. And the plan is this, because driving, sometimes you have to drive for maybe an hour, right? I know it sounds like in the US sounds terrible, right? And drive an hour. But in Europe, you drive for an hour, sport climb all day, bivouac, Oh, there's always a village close by. Drive down into the village, get a really good pizza, organic pizza, and a litre of red wine, salad. Drive back up to the climbing area and bivouac outside the fucking car. Rusty's probably going to be sleeping on my throat or chest. And then we'll climb the next day do the same thing, and then drive home, and then, you know, do I take a shower or go for a swim? Well, Rusty says she wants to chase the ball in the, in the sea. So maybe I'll just go for a swim and save power. And I'll, that's the future for me. Seems like you got it all planned it's out. It's awesome, man. <laughs> he's, he's already there. It sounds like he's already there. <laughs> I think uh, circling back to, to Max's question, like, you you have this lighthearted sense about you. You you have a, a good sense of humor, and um, you're charismatic. Like, do do those characteristics, and did those characteristics carry on into who you are in the mountains, or are you um, much more um, hmm. solid and and more focused? I would say on. When I'm in the mountains, I'm an airline pilot. Checklists in my brain, assessments, go, not go. When it's go, it's go all in. And it, and it used to, and now it would be, you know, the assessments would be different. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go all in on a 10,000 foot mix <laughs> right now, you know. <laughs> Right, you know, <laughs> but I could maybe, but and and so I don't know if there's much 
go all in anymore. Where was it? I think this is a, a few years ago, but you know, I was still back into this non Himalayan climbing stuff, right? We went to do the red dihedral on the Hulk. On the Hulk. Yeah. And I did it with a guy who was technically better than me. Not a lot better technically, but he was a little bit better. Uh, Dowie Butler. And, you know, it's pretty, it's, it's high enough where you can feel the altitude, right? So we walked in one day. We, I, I made a little fire. We had hot rum and chocolate at night. It was in the end of the first week of October. There'd been a snowstorm a couple of weeks before, a week before. But the park said, oh, no, it's clear. Well, yeah, okay, it was. But we popped out over the top. So shorter day, so it's October. It's not May, you know, 14 hours of daylight or whatever. Popped over the top into three foot of snow on those ledges at the back. And I've got no socks on, rock shoes, and fucking, you know, we have a wind windbreaker, no bivy gear, I mean, you know, fuck all food or water or whatever. Um, and we go across there and we have to, supposed to find this 5-8 climb up this crack on the left. It's plastered in like 6-8 inches of snow. There's no fucking way we can climb it. It's mixed, I mean, no way. And, you know, we've got an hour before it's dark. Jeez. Right, and it's going to get cold, and it's a breeze blowing already. And there's this corner crack that's dry. And Dowie came up to me. I'd, I'd walk, walked along this ledge and, you know, scrambled up on the snow ledge here. And Dowie came up and he said, Al, I think we're in trouble. I said, you're <laughs> fucking right we are, mate. Give me the gear. You know, he's a better climber. I, I'm hard to kill. <laughs> I went off up this five nine. <laughs> I went off up this five nine off with shit. I'm hesitated, no hesitation. Fucking going, had to go, had to go. Two pictures of that oh. went out on the ridge, and then you know I beel him down the ridge. We find a wrap. We go into the gully. The wind stopped, and we know we're getting out of there, right? Wow. But at the time we had to do those two pictures there. It was like the only thing I could say after I've been hard to kill. And I don't know where that would go now <laughs> if I was ever in that position. Mm. I've got a kind of feeling that it would all be the same. <laughs> I don't want to die doing this shit. Yeah. And I still have enough power there in reserve to fucking do it if I have to. Water, food. I take the piss out of my Wife, well, where are we going for lunch? Lunch? Who the fuck eats lunch? <laughs> I didn't even eat breakfast. I I expect to eat something this evening, possibly. But if it doesn't happen, I can still breathe as I can live on air <laughs> and cut fucking fat off my body and muscle. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to kill. That's what I'd like to see my obituary be. That needs to be put on your, your tombstone. That needs to be, it was hard <laughs> to kill. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh man. So I don't I don't choose particularly extreme difficulty anymore. You know, because you know I'm I don't want to die. Yeah. But but I really I still enjoy like that new crag. You know? You're walking up to the new crag you've never climbed on before. And you know, especially if it's a multi-pitch and safe mm-hmm. and shit. It's like, wow, yes. Spirit this is this is kind of the adventure, and it doesn't have to be hard. It probably wouldn't be hard. It's just like it's new, rather than, you know, well, I'm doing this five, six multi-pitch for the tenth time, you know. I, I, and I'm not looking for danger mm-hmm. at all. Definitely not looking for danger. No, in fact, I am one of the most conservative drivers um, who, who maybe even shouldn't be driving. <laughs> because, because I have one eye that drives and one eye that reads. And sometimes depth perception gets mixed up. <laughs> so I can see the distance. But I can't fucking tell how fast we go. I thought my wife's going to pick me up tonight. Oh, from the yeah. Um, I'm I'm wondering because um, I think I think with climbing being so popular and stuff, there's a lot of uh, aging athletes, and you're pretty. I don't know if you know, but you're pretty unique, and most people at the age of seventy four don't really look like you or have your spirit. So is there anything you think that's kind of your secret to it? Like what are, what are some, some things that you do that, that keep you just, you know, being healthy and vibrant? Well, I think in, in the last, in the last 20 years, what did I learn from Nepal? I became vegetarian and indirectly I learned how to breathe at high altitude, which is a form of yoga, pranayama. And I've been practicing Ashtanga now for 25 years. Not every day, but I did an hour today. And I was the oldest guy in class, that's for fucking sure. <laughs> but I wasn't the stiffest in class either. I would say vegetarian, practice yoga, exercise. You know, I mean, just activity. Mm-hmm. Just activity, you know. Gotta keep moving. I mean, I, I, I think I told you guys about the old... You know, the, the ice guy, you know, went put my foot up here and stuff and said, you know, I want to be able to see my feet. Yeah. Right. I'm not sure that those glasses are going to work, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Maybe I have to wear them longer and stuff, you know. But they say movement is medicine. I think that that's uh, Al right here is a, a clear testament to that. Um, you know, you your body, if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. And you've got to keep moving, got to keep. And, and I think that the key is being inspired to move. Like, yeah. why are you moving? Like, you've got to find a reason to stay excited. You've got to stay in, in enthusiastic about life. Yeah. And I think that, you know, your your spirit for adventure is the the key for that. You know what I'm looking, really looking forward to? You know, obviously, I used to hike everywhere in Nepal. I mean, there probably ain't a place I ain't been to numbers of times. There's a hike 
called the GR5, Grand Route 5, that goes from, I think it goes from Geneva to Nice on the Mediterranean coast. So it goes from Switzerland all the way through the Alps down to the Mediterranean. And there's a whole bunch of these GRs, Grand Routes. I can imagine, particularly if it's hot in summer, when you're, I'm not going to be rock climbing in Spain in summer, Erin and I, or even if Erin comes back to work, at least me and the dog, we'll go and do these things. You just, you know, you hike 10 miles over a ridge down into a village, light pack, stay in some little jeet, hostel place. As I said, a salad, glass of wine, piece of pizza, whatever. Next day, do the same thing and do it for 50 days on the run. Maybe it's deck and rest day sometimes because there's a lake and Rusty needs to wash. <laughs> right? I mean, that to me, but that's still exciting. That's adventure. Because I've never done that, you know? And I know I used to do the equivalent of that in, uh, in Nepal and India and Pakistan, you know, but it's much more comfortable doing it in France, mm-hmm. you know? I don't have to fucking carry 60 pounds up and over a ridge every day, right? You know, I mean, I probably still could, but I don't want to. You know, I don't need to. I'd, I'd rather do, instead of doing 10 miles a day, well, let's just do 15. You know, and, and just keep, if I, if I can keep my knees and my hips good so that I'm not like staggering along hurting. And right now, touch wood, man, they're all, they're all working good. Yeah. It's impressive. I, yeah, most of my friends, not forget guides and all this, they've all got sec- new hips and knees. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, I mean, I did full load yeah. just today. You're an anomaly, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I keep doing it, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the Consistency. Yeah. Consistency, I keep doing it. So that, it seemed like uh, a message to kind of people in, in your age group and, and a lesson yeah. to keep moving. What would you say to this explosive new group of climbers that are starting to get into the sport now? Like, do you, From your experiences and everything, do you have any sort of simple message or lesson that you'd like to transfer to well, this group? you know, if it's the choice between a video game and going bouldering in the climbing gym with your friends, parents, get them a pass at the bouldering gym. Get them off the computers, get them moving. Also, it's super social. You know why? A lot of girls go to the climbing gym. (laughs) And they boulder and sit around and chat. And you might only be 8, 9, 10, 11 right now. They'll be there five years from now as well. I would suggest just build up on it. You know, you don't have to, you know, just build it up. Boulder in his strength training. Go lead climbing, top roping in the gym. And then, you know, if you can find someone to climb outside with, because somewhere in that climbing gym, there will be people that climb outside. Climb outside with them. Don't con- control the ego. The ego is great for motivation, but it's really bad if it gets you into trouble. 
and then just build on it and see where your skills are. You know, you might have come in from being a track athlete or a gymnast. Come into it from wherever you come into it and then find some place in the sport that does this. And then keep doing it. Um, press, you know, when you're younger, press the edges. Train. Don't, don't rip your finger tendons out. You don't need to. You know, just train enough. Cross train. And if you're going to get into mountaineering, a lot fewer people will go into mountaineering that come into rock climbing gyms. Be careful. The mountains are changing. They're warming up. It's not the same thing. You might have to climb at different seasons. Be Climb smart. You know, if you're going to climb in alpine climbing, there ain't a better place to climb than Chamonix. But you may, in France, but you may have to go at different seasons because summer ain't the season anymore. But, it, but spring and fall and don't start off with the hardest route. Start off with a 1,500-foot route. Build up your experience. Build on your experience. And if you're young, strong, and fit, that experience can come quickly. It can come quickly. Now, you know, how much risk to take, that's going to all play out later. I have a long string of friends who are now dead because they played out, and I was probably lucky. And I've said before, Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. So, you know, stay attuned. Smell the air. See what, learn, experience, you know. Moisture's too high. Dodgy. Don't have to do it. Don't be forced into it. Be cautious. Be, I would say, initially, be cautious as you get in into it. You've got all the tools of weather and so on and routes and information, but still be cautious. You can be necky later when you've got the experience. It doesn't matter if you climb for 5.13 and you've gone to the Walker's Purley winter, you won't make it halfway up because you won't know what the hell you're doing. Build up on it. And when it comes to high altitude climbing, uh, oof, the golden season's probably gone in many ways. Um, the golden season for altitude climbing now may well be in a place like climbing 23,000 foot peaks in Pakistan and India, not Nepal anymore. That could, that could be, and I'm, you know, not following it anymore, but, you know, I mean, find people who know it's out there for sure. And you, you don't have to pay people to learn. Mountaineering clubs in universities and stuff always have more experienced people around. And they'll teach you slowly. And if you're a good student, you'll learn quickly. And if you're strong and trained, you'll learn quickly. And you'll learn, but, you know, there's so much information. You don't need to be... Alex Honnold the first year around your climbing because <laughs> he wasn't either. Yeah. Awesome. Build on it. Yeah, well, well thank you, Al, for, <laughs> right. for, for, gosh, for everything, for sharing your book with me, for 
reaching out to me and, and just establishing contact and sharing this little chunk of your <laughs> insane life <laughs> here in Reno and, and just everything. And the new so, life potential. Yeah. Started in Spain. Yeah. It's good luck to you and Spain and everything. It's just been such an awesome, awesome experience to chat with you. It's been so enlightening and, and expanding in my understanding of the sport itself, especially in the past. So um, I've just been super grateful to to have met you and everything. So yeah, thanks for taking your time and nice. No problem. It's yeah. Been fun. It's yeah. been fun and fun. Yeah. Likewise, Al, it's been really, really awesome just chatting and meeting with you. And, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take our conversations and your, your young spirit and humor with me in the mountains. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure.